1: This week's episode of Astonishing Legends is brought to you by Stamps.com, The Great Courses Plus, Beachbody, Harry's, and our contributors at patreon.com. Tonight's legend is of a nature similar to many that we share in that there are a wide variety of variations on the stories associated with it. We've handpicked some of our favorites in full recognition that many of them have prominent alternate versions. Between 1817
0: and 1820, something very strange took place at a large cabin which sat on a thousand acres of land along the Red River in Tennessee, just 40 miles southeast of Kelly, Kentucky on what is known today as US-41. This was the homestead of John Bell and the story of the astonishing legend of the Bell Witch, a tale that will challenge your perception of what a witch really is and have you questioning the reality of what this thing might have actually been. The details surrounding the legend defy explanation. They don't align with any other story of a witch that you've ever heard. There are dozens of encounters with a being that was able to conjure fresh fruit and other objects out of thin air, initiate violent physical assaults, and answer any question posed to it with a clear verbal response, never confusing facts unless it was intentionally misleading someone to amuse itself. It taunted those who tried to investigate it, mentally, verbally, and physically and it tortured members of Patriarch John Bell's family for years. The Bell Witch, known simply as Kate most of the time, was quite a handful. Narcissistic, needy, egomaniacal, and at times, believe it or not, even congenial. During all her appearances, not just at the Bell home, but throughout the entire area in other homes and even on the road taunting travelers. Tonight, we're starting with a brief look at one of the hundreds of encounters with her when a man named William Porter almost captured her. Porter, being a good friend to the Bell family, had become so involved in the nearly constant appearances of Kate that in an effort to help the family get some rest periodically, he would come over to the Bell homestead and engage her in conversation for long periods of time. You see, Kate never really took a form of any kind unless it was to beat someone senseless. The only time she appeared to manifest in the shape of an invisible but solid being was late one night at Porter's house. The following account of that event is taken from what is believed to be the earliest written version of the Bell Witch legend. A book entitled Our Family Trouble, written by John Bell's son, Richard Williams Bell, as a diary during and after the events, and first published as a chapter in M.V. Ingram's book. The Authenticated History of the Bell Witch in 1894
1: Billy, I have come to sleep with you and keep you warm. Porter replied, Well, Kate, if you are going to sleep with me, you must behave yourself. I clung to the cover, feeling that it was drawing from me, as it appeared to be raised from the bed on the other side, and something snake-like crawling under. I was never afraid of the witch or apprehended that it would do me any harm, but somehow this produced a kind of chilly sensation that was simply awful. The cover continued to slip in spite of my tenacious grasp, and it was twisted into a roll on the back side of the bed, just like a boy would roll himself up in a quilt, and not a strip was left on me. I jumped out of bed in a second, and observing that Kate had rolled up in the cover... The thought struck me, "'I have got you now, you rascal, and I will burn you up.' In an instant, I grabbed the roll of cover in my arms and started to the fire, intending to throw the cover, which and all, in the blaze. I discovered that it was very weighty and smelt awful. I had not gone halfway across the room before the luggage got so heavy and became so offensive that I was compelled to drop it on the floor and rush out of doors for a breath of fresh air.' The odor emitted from the roll was the most offensive stench I ever smelt. It was absolutely stifling, and I could not have endured it another second. After being refreshed, I returned to the room and gathered up the roll of bedclothing, shook them out. But Kate had departed, and there was no unusual weight or offensive odor remaining. And this is just how near I came catching the witch.
0: Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess.
1: I am a spirit from everywhere. Heaven, hell, the earth, am in the air, in houses, in any place at any time, have been created millions of years. That is all I will tell you. The Bell Witch.
0: Join us tonight for part one of our show on the Bell Witch of Red River, Tennessee, and the trail of
1: torture and death she left behind her. Tonight's story is pretty big.
0: Yeah, and I feel a little bit like a broken record because I keep saying this. I keep saying I'm worried that there's not going to be enough material.
1: (laughs) Well, that's before you've looked at anything. Yeah,
0: there are so many detailed stories here. Yeah. Before you even get down to the veracity of it all, there's a lot of fun folklore wrapped up in this tale.
1: Yeah, whether you believe none of it happened or it's all exactly as the legends continue to this day, it's all really about Southern American folklore. Yes. uh, Because it's the folkloric tradition in action. Now, you made an important point earlier in that some who don't believe in any of this is going to say there's nothing to look at here. Right. It's all hearsay. It's all family stories handed down uh, generation to generation. But you're also going to hear tonight from some people who are related to these two main families that experienced most of this. And the other thing is that the whole community experienced some of this because they were all harassed to a certain degree.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of stories that have been handed down, and it does come from more than a few sources, but a lot of it is oral history, too. So it's very hard... To pin down, it reminds me a fair amount of the Jersey Devil story. Right. And how these things can unfold. Now, most of this happened, the bulk of it, I should say, the highest period of activity was between 1817 right. and 1821, just under 200 years ago.
1: That would be the flap in this yes, story. Yes, that so, would be the yeah. Bell Witch flap. Right, not too long after the American Revolution. Exactly. So the country was still young. This was still the open frontier, because still, not a lot of East Coasts settlers of English and Scottish backgrounds hadn't moved that far out west yet. It was still pretty wild and dangerous as we'll see.
0: That's right. And a lot of people have investigated this case from every possible angle. Believers, skeptics, everything, and they've actually all done impressive work, frankly. I have not seen anything that I wanted to be as argumentative about with yeah. this story as yeah. I might have been with some
1: of our more recent stories. Again, those are more recent and provoking controversy. Yes. But this, no less, can have its own lingering controversy because, again, you're talking about people's good family names, and especially in an area of the country where that counts. Now, a few of these accounts that people have written are actually from the descendants of these two main families, the Johnstons and the Bells. And one book that we take a look at is by Dr. Jim Brooks, and he's the fifth generation Johnston. His ancestors were the closest friends and neighbors to the Bells. Who were the main focus of this of the entity here? One of the main collective and I guess seminal accounts, that's the full account of the story was by Martin van Buren Ingram. That came sometime after, although I think slightly pre-19th century, and a lot of people today are questioning that as a qualified source. It's funny you should say that because it's at this time that we'd like to
0: remind everyone how Astonishing Legends works, especially newcomers to the show, which we've had a lot of lately and are so glad you found us. In our multi-part series that we present, like this one tonight, part one will mostly tell you the stories. It's not about skepticism beyond the occasional comment. It's not about analysis yet either, but the folklore and the story. Our ensuing parts will share a few more stories, but will shift the balance of the discussion to light critical analysis. Sometimes there's a part three, in which case this model still applies. It just takes longer to get there. And we say light critical analysis because people spend years researching legends like this, whereas we cover a new legend every few weeks. We're gonna touch on every angle we've been able to find in our own cursory research before this series is over, but tonight's episode is not so much about why the Bell Witch may or may not be real. It's about the legends surrounding her story. So that opening, that was one of my favorite stories in all the books. And one of the books that I read, I'm going to hold it right here and present this. Right. Or so you can
1: all see it on radio? Yeah, so you guys yeah.
0: can see it. Oh, no. <laughs> I've only just gotten to the point where I'm comfortable messing with stuff that's going to make noise well, yes. on the microphone. Because yeah. well, we've been natural. so obsessed with perfect studio, Yeah, We'd and then like at Fortiano. Well, we
1: try to be perfect, and then maybe 20% is perfect. Yeah. You know? We have to aim very high and hit low. So. Yeah.
0: Anyway, this book is called The Bell Witch Anthology, and it's a collection of all the primary books about this story that were written by the Bell family and one additional author. So this features the works of Richard Williams Bell, who was a son of John Bell, the patriarch, Charles Bailey Bell, M.V. Ingram, who we just mentioned, and another author named Harriet Parks Miller, and it's edited by Nick Moretti. The books here in the anthology are Our Family Trouble, which is the first published account that we mentioned at the top of the show. That's the one written by Richard Williams Bell, supposedly as a young man, and later compiled into a short book of about 90 or 100 pages, which became a chapter in... The Authenticated History of the Bell Witch and Other Stories of the World's Greatest Unexplained Phenomenon, which was the book by M.V. Ingram. And then we also have the book The Bell Witch, A Mysterious Spirit. That's the one by Charles Bailey Bell. And the last one is The Bell Witch of Middle Tennessee by Harriet Parks Miller. I just want to tell you, we've got a lot of great information from these books. I will tell you also that they're not for the faint of heart. They are written in the 1800s, and there's a fair amount of really disgusting racist language,
1: which (laughs) honestly for me was hard to read. Not that you should ever be used to that, but especially in this age. No, and I I don't We're not used to reading that kind of stuff. No,
0: and I don't believe in censorship, but like there were whole sections that I just, I read them because I felt like it was important to know what happened and it's part of the history. But it's difficult. So just know that if you go out seeking these books, you're going to get a very real look at what things were like in the 1800s in the South.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Because after 1650, I mean, before that, there was indentured servitude arrangements helping people out, which is people in debt and, and prisoners, coming from England and Europe, helping as laborers. But of course, after that, they started relying on African slave labor. Yes. That's how they decided to get things done. So that lasted for quite a long time. And, and you'll see the attitudes here that are pre-19th century come into play where those ideas are freely bandied about.
0: Yeah, and it's a prominent part of the history of this case. And to the point where we feel like it's pertinent, we're going to be pointing that out because it's not something that should be cut out of the history books or of the retelling of the story. It's very much a part of the story. So we'll be touching on that as well. But these books are really fascinating. And I think that reading the anthology, I really enjoyed that because they came across multiple generations and it gives you a really big picture view of how the Bell Witch was perceived by this family over 100 years or so. And then you read an additional book, Forrest,
1: which was... Bell Witch Stories You Never Heard from the Family That Lived Next Door, and it's by Dr. Jim Brooks. The patriarch of the Johnston family is his fifth great-grandfather.
0: Now, we haven't told you who that is yet, but the Johnstons were very close friends
1: to... John Bell Sr., they were basically the best friends, I would say, of this family, living the closest, and the first ones to have been told about it by Lucy Bell and John Bell Sr. Keep this in mind as well, because you'll see a lot of people trying to paint this as, again, here's another case of people selling tickets and trying to make money and write books and do all that kind of stuff and profit off this. But these were Christian folks, and they were kind of ashamed and embarrassed about this happening to them, but it was so dramatic and could not be ignored and experienced by so many people around them that the story got out of hand in the whole community. But the Johnstons were the first ones that were told about it. And so Jane Johnston, the wife of James Johnston, was a friend of Lucy Bell's, the wife of John Bell Sr. Yes. And so the two ladies, she was the first one who told her about that, like, hey, there's something really weird going on what can we do? Do you have any suggestions? And then later in the day, James Johnston was told by his wife and Lucy Bell, and that night he actually came over to experience it for himself. Yes, which we're going to be talking about here in a minute. And so he experienced the same thing. And they thought that maybe he knows how to get rid of this thing, and he could not. And then from there... The story kind of got out, not from them, but basically many people in this community were experiencing something strange related to this. So it was a big story. And so for those who say, well, it was one family making up something crazy and other people tried to go along with it to gain tourism or or some money, that was not the case. There was no money made because basically people started showing up in the evenings and the bells would feed them, Yes, <laughs> being nice folks at the time, but we're talking lots of people every night start showing up at some Yeah, there was
0: enough people that people, when they came, in some cases, would have to stay in tents outside. Yeah. They were all coming to witness this. Now, the thing that's good about the book that you read by Mr. Brooks is that it's outside corroboration of a story that has been told by M.V. Ingram, and that's a story that's been repeated the most when you hear the details of the Bell Witch. And there are some people that say, well, Ingram has, has made a bunch of this material up. And that's when you start saying, okay, well, if he made it up, or if he's wholly inventing all of these happenings, which is frankly... What I first thought when I started reading it, Certainly, because it is yeah. fantastic, the well, stuff right, that right. is happening. And I don't mean fantastic like woohoo, I love it. I mean fantastic in the actual yeah. original definition of the word.
1: Fantastical yes. and phantasmical. Yes, yeah. very well put.
0: Yeah. But with Mr. Book's book, what Forrest is conveying is that this is a whole separate family and a separate account of the story based on traditional history within this outside family that bore witness these happenings, and it's separate from the account that M. V. Ingram published.
1: Right. Well, I will clarify, though, that Dr. Jim Brooks, who wrote this book, has gotten many of his detail references from Ingram's book, and he lists what page number they can be found on. So you have to keep in mind, though, is that this is oral tradition passed down within basically two family lines, the Bells and the Johnstons. And Dr. Jim Brooks is part of the Johnston line, as we said, five generations or more. So not all the details are going to be the same. You're going to have embellishments probably, but here's my point on that, because people will use that as a defense, like, well, it's just a story and it's all jumbled and, and mixed up and probably a lot of it's not true. That's very likely. But if you look at the main core of this uh, of the trunk of the story here, yeah, some branches may have changed or been snapped off here, but the main core of something very strange, poltergeist-like happened to these folks And that basic story has been passed down and kept as a family tradition of lore ever since. So my point is like, yeah, some details may have been off. Some may have been embellished. Some may have been invented, totally. But the fact that this whole community experienced something strange, that seems to be at the core of the story.
0: Well, taking a look at the story that we told at the beginning of the show about William Porter capturing this thing and trying to throw it into the fire. I just thought that was an amazing story. And one of the things that wasn't pointed out is that just for the record, he was a bachelor. He was not attempting to cheat on his wife with this creature when it said, I'm going to come to your house and keep you warm tonight. And he said, you know, behave yourself. (laughs) And this thing crawled into bed. And pulled all the covers off of him. Yeah. Not unlike modern day. (laughs) You're you're
1: right. You got a blanket (laughs) hog there. Uh,
0: No, listen, hey, I'm not making any personal... Oh, of course not. uh, No, no, no. let's keep the peace there. Sure. But the covers got pulled over. He decides that he's going to lunge for this thing, carry it to the fire... And when he gets up, it actually was described verbally as having the body of a snake. And that's interesting to me because... Oh, yeah, there's a few
1: things I can say about that.
0: Yeah, because yeah. in the illustration, you see, the one that I tweeted out for us and put on Instagram and everything when when we started working on the show, it looks like a female form, a standard female well, form.
1: yeah, that's what's understandable. But to an artist rendition. Yes.
0: Yeah. But in the written description, he described something wrapped up in the blanket that felt like a huge snake.
1: Right. To right. me, that's even more frightening. <laughs> well, again, this is... I don't think couldn't it's... couldn't
0: see it. It I, had mass.
1: Right. Well, kind and, of like in uh, Predator, you know, when they catch it in the net and it's kind yeah. of invisible, but there's something in there and it's going nuts. Yeah. Also, in a dramatic scene of The Entity, remember with Barbara Hershey? And, yes. And uh, I love it when science is trying to tackle the paranormal and the unknown. Yes. And using scientific methods. But they actually try to freeze this entity with liquid nitrogen cannons, I believe, on motion trackers. So they could sense something is moving around in the room around her, and they freeze this thing, and of course, it's not very happy. Yeah. But it does work a little bit. That's, uh, by the way, not a movie for kids at all. Very scary, I think late 70s, early 80s movie, but uh, we reference it from time to time because it was kind of an interesting case. Yeah, we also might be
0: doing a little research on it.
1: Possibly. We'll see. But the thing is that this thing has some kind of physical... You may not be able to see it, but it has mass of some kind, much as you cannot see the wind, but it's there. It's moving molecules, so something is there. But the idea, though, that it has this other shape, that reminded me also, you and and Tess and I were texting and talking about these various ideas. I'm really fascinated about the idea of some kind of proposed entity, or it could even be from literature, and there's a couple of examples. Well, one, Stephen King's It!, Not to spoil anything, but this entity has several different forms. It's got a human form, and it has kind of a beast form, but it's the same thing, and supposedly some kind of spiritual form that's driving it. But it also reminded me of Beowulf, and... Grendel's mother who, and again, this is probably the easiest way to visualize this is the, uh, I don't know if you saw the, the Robert Zemeckis animated version. No, I haven't. Uh, I loved it. I, yeah. I did. There's something kind of very unnerving, let's say about it, because it's early animation with the dead kind of eyes. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. But it's very well done. So Grendel's mother, voiced by Angelina Jolie, takes several forms. It's an alluring seductress in female form, but it's also some kind of horrible lizard beast. And of course, some kind of ethereal spirit type of thing, as well as her progeny there that's also a dragon and a man. So that's kind of a very ancient concept to me, something having several different forms at once or can take several different forms that are allegorical and representational. Yes. And it won't be the last time we talk about chimeras in this particular
0: story. They keep coming up, it appears. Oh
1: no, no. no. You, you gotta have your cryptoid incursion here with all these good ones. And that's why also why we love it because Wait, is gotta, that a new word? Cryptoid? Uh, like like, a... like factoid. Oh, it's kind oh, of a like light it. fact light. I, I kinda yeah. like it. It's because Let's trademark. It. Well <laughs> when we go to talk cryptoid. about it, it's not exactly as you'll hear. Again, I always go to like what's kind of believable, maybe the chupacabra. some yeah. kind of weird mutated dog, coyote, hairless you know, sloth kind of thing that's just running around and goat sucker. But it's an animal, you know what I'm saying? Like it's a weird animal and nothing we've ever seen and maybe it's just a mutation. But that's kind of like okay, I'll I'll buy that. But something like this that we're going to describe is much more on the mystical side. Yes, indeed.
0: Podcasts are really exploding these days, and that's because we live in an on-demand world now. Technology has freed us up from the shackles of having to be in a particular place at a particular time to do, well, anything.
1: So you have to ask yourself, when it comes to the stuff you have to do every
0: day, why are you still going to the post office? My post office doesn't even open until 10 a.m., I have an 8-year-old. I'm four hours into my day at that point. By 10 a.m., I need to have been back at my desk for at least an hour, researching, writing, and prepping for our show.
1: That's what's so great about Stamps.com. Anything that you can do at the post office, you can now do right from your desk. It's seriously cool. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any
0: letter or package using your own computer and printer. And unlike the post office, Stamps.com never closes. So you can get postage whenever you need it. 24-7, which is great for me because in my life, shipping stuff either happens at the crack of dawn or closer to midnight when the
1: rest of the show is out of the way. It's really great, especially if you have some kind of a small merchandising business like we do. Whether it's an eBay or Etsy store or even a bit of a larger operation, when you've got to handle your own shipping quickly and efficiently, Stamps.com is perfect because it saves you a ton of time and the reduced rates on postage and your bottom line. Full disclosure,
0: I tried these guys out a few years ago myself and honestly, I had some difficulties because I'm a Mac guy, and while it was great for PC users, it didn't work so hot for Mac users back then, but they've sorted all of that out. It's seamless now, and it only takes me a minute or two to print my postage, even in batches for multiple
1: shipments. It's honestly a dream come true. Right now, use the word astonishing for this special offer, a four-week trial, which includes postage and a digital scale.
0: Go to stamps.com, and before you do anything else, click on the radio microphone at the top of the homepage and type in astonishing that stamps.com enter
1: astonishing stamps.com never go to the post office again amen brother
0: when i'm not flipping bungalows for wealthy martians i'm listening to astonishing legends let's get back to scott and forrest okay so most of our account here comes from a book we mentioned at the top of the show entitled our family trouble this was written by john bell's son Richard Williams Bell. But the problem is this book didn't appear on its own when it was written. It was actually incorporated into a later book that was released by Martin Ingram or M.V. Ingram. Right. I-N-G-R-A-M. Here's the backstory of the book. And it's really just a manuscript because Richard was only six years old when this thing first started showing up. Yeah, he
1: did not start writing this at six, to be clear. But these were stories he'd heard from six years old For the rest of his life.
0: Yeah. So the activities took place during the time that he was six all the way up till 10, because it was four years of activity before it ceased for seven years.
1: Yeah. He was there. Again, I want to make it clear. It's not just stories he heard from other relatives. He was there. He was there. and And he witnessed it. So just imagine your own life. What are your earliest memories that are kind of traumatic? Well, he watched it beating up his brother really badly, as as well
0: as assaulting his sister, who was a focal point of the witch's ire. So in the big picture, what's going on here generationally is that Richard Williams Bell, who was John Bell's son and was six years old to 10 years old during the first appearance, four-year appearance of the Bell Witch, kept some notes or wound up writing about the activities that happened. He sat on this for a long time, and then when he was in his 30s, he compiled it into a manuscript. But he and his brother had agreed not to publish it until at least the entire generation that had been affected by the story had all passed away. So on his deathbed, he passes it on to his son, J.A. Bell, who actually became a state representative. J.A. Bell, in turn, when asked by Martin Ingram, handed it over to Martin Ingram, remembering that he had expressed an earlier desire to publish the story of the Bell Witch. So then Martin Ingram wrote The Authenticated History of the Famous Bell Witch, which he published in 1894. Putting all this in perspective, the manuscript had been written in 1846, but it was then published as a chapter, a single chapter in Martin Ingram's book in 1894. And the interesting thing about that is that is just four years after... Joel Egbert Bell passed away, and Joel is the one that the witch used to assault viciously when he was a child. Right. So now we're
1: looking at doing this publication just four years after he's passed away. Exactly, and Joel Egbert Bell was the one who the witch prophesied to return to and did. Yes. We'll get into that a little bit later, but he was one of the last ones to see direct Bell witch activity, and he was the youngest child of John Bell Sr., So him having died at the age of 77, he's the last remaining member of that family to actually witness that. After he passed away, then J.A. Bell took it upon himself, now that everyone had passed away, that was directly involved, to finally publish an account or make available an account to the public about the story From the best source possible, which was the people who experienced it. That's right.
0: And he apparently sent a letter to M.V. Ingram. Now, we're going to talk a lot more in part two about the origins of all these letters and this information. But for right now, the point is that in the book, An Authenticated History of the Famous Bell Witch, and by the way, I'm reading this from the Bell Witch Anthology on page 133. Ingram is presenting a letter from J.A. Bell to him regarding the desire to go ahead and publish his father's material. I'm going to read an excerpt from that real quick. This history was written by father during the fall and winter of 1846 and is the only sketch ever written in detail by anyone cognizant of the facts and demonstrations. Now, nearly 75 years having elapsed, The old members of the family who suffered the torments, having all passed away, and the witch story continues to be discussed as widely as the family name is known under misconception of the facts. I have concluded that in justice to the memory of an honored ancestry, and to the public also whose minds have been abused in regard to the matter, it would be well to give the whole story to the world. You, having made the application years ago, and he's referring to Mr. Ingram here, and believing you are capable and will, if you undertake it, being already acquainted with many of the circumstances, compile a faithful history of the events. I am willing to let you have this manuscript and notes on the condition that you will agree to include all other corroborative testimony still to be had and write a deserved sketch of Grandfather John Bell and family and those associated with him in any way during the period of the unexplained visitation, which afflicted him and gave rise to the excitement. Respectfully,
1: J.A. Bell. Well, there you go. He's trying to set the family record straight for not only the family name, but for the public in general.
0: And that's dated, by the way, July 1st, 1891. Right. So this is just a year after Joel passed away. Right. It's pretty interesting. This is the setup for the origin of the story and how why the story gets out there in the first place.
1: Later on, people say, like, well, why'd you wait so long? Well... It was so traumatic and painful for the family that the younger members of that generation wanted to wait till the older folks were all passed away.
0: According to the legend, and there's multiple versions of this story, as we indicated at the very top of the show, but this all started when John Bell, after having moved to Robertson County in North Tennessee, was out hunting on his farmland. And he apparently saw this creature in between a couple of rows of corn on the land. At first thought it was a dog, But when he got closer to it, he couldn't tell what it was. So I don't know what was happening here but again we come back to that uh, the dog that we always talk about in uh, invasion of the body snatchers in the 1970s version <laughs> yeah, which seems yeah. to come up in every episode now i
1: think it was a boxer yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. it was a boxer with a human face yes yeah.
1: and the tongue came out and was licking its chops yeah, which it's that good. was that's the uh, what i call the button on a gag yeah yeah that's what you call it huh well i mean you <laughs> know what i'm saying it's like you could see just a ma- a rubber mask on a dog and certainly that's frightening if you don't know what it is But when it's actually licking its chops, the tongue coming out of that face is like... It's uh, early compositing.
0: The point is that he didn't know what this thing was. Right. He saw it in the corn there, and he took a shot at it, and it disappeared. Because it was a corn owl. Well, here's a description from page 138 of the Bell Witch Anthology. This comes from Ingram's book, An Authenticated History of the Famous Bell Witch he was confronted by a strange animal unlike any he had ever seen, sitting in a corn row gazing steadfastly at him as he approached nearer. He concluded it was probably a dog and having his gun in hand shot at it when the animal ran off. So in the book Haunted Tennessee, Ghosts and Strange Phenomena of the Volunteer State by Alan Brown, that book says, and this book is specific to the stories in Tennessee, This is on page 76 of the ebook. Bell had an experience that changed his life forever. In late summer, he was walking along the edge of his cornfield with gun in hand when he spied a strange-looking animal sitting in the middle of a corn row. The creature seemed to have the body of a dog and the head of a rabbit. Bell raised his gun and fired several times with no discernible effect. Suddenly, the beast dematerialized. Bell was shaken by the incident, but by the time he returned home, he forgot to mention it to his family that's according to that account. Then if we take a look at this other account, this is from Dr. Charles Bailey Bell, who was a neurologist and the great-grandson of John Bell. And this is information that came down directly from Betsy Bell, who was the primary
1: target after John of the witch. Yes, Charles Bailey Bell was a neurologist in Nashville, and Betsy Bell was his great-aunt. Yes. So he's getting it straight from the source later in her life. And then he ended up writing a book called The Bell Witch, A Mysterious Spirit in 1934. And that's where this excerpt comes from. Although
0: in this case, that book is part of the anthology. So this is on page 70 of the anthology. Some 12 or 15 years after their arrival in Tennessee, John Bell was going to the north end of the farm to look over the daily work and give such orders to the overseers as necessary. He carried his rifle, thinking possibly to get a shot at a rabbit or a duck at the pond. As he passed the north end of the orchard, he saw a peculiar looking animal sitting between two corn rows. It looked like a dog, yet on closer inspection, he could not determine to what species it belonged. He shot at the animal, which at once disappeared. This is consistent. A short time later, Drury, who was another son in the family, and Betsy saw strange creatures for which they could not account. But as the country was new and many different animals and birds were seen, they did not attach much importance to what they saw. And I wanna say something here before I go on about Betsy. She was known to be very intelligent and to understand all the different types of trees and animals, she really paid attention to that sort of thing. She was a bit of a naturalist even at that young age. Yeah, exactly. So that's a significant statement to say that they were seeing things that they didn't understand. About this time, Betsy saw what she believed to be a woman strolling about the orchard. She spoke to her, but had no answer the apparition at once disappearing. So that's the beginning. That's the onset of this. And this story is being told from theoretically multiple verifiable sources. But I'm still pointing out, and I think it's important too, that these sources are all coming from Ingram's account. That's where they've been collected, yes. Yes, that's where they've been collected. But this theoretically jibes with family history. And Betsy was there. Betsy, again, was the target of the witch after her father, John, So this is kind of the first hint that something strange is going on at the Bell Homestead
1: at their new location in Tennessee. And it seems to fit a pattern that you hear a lot about, like we saw with a sludge entity, where small little things will start to appear that are strange and you kind of dismiss them, and then more things happening and more things, and it escalates. And then finally, something bad focuses on one member of the family, but with every member of the family, noticing and experiencing these strange effects
0: well not too long after john bell senior took that shot at that creature whatever it was and then the rest of the family started seeing strange things on the land they started hearing noises outside the cabin at night rattling noises on the roof knocking knocking rapping and at first they weren't sure what it was And I think that probably like everybody, they were in a little bit of a state of denial about it. But then it started moving inside the house. And they described what sounded like a rat gnawing on the bedposts at night. Yeah. And they would be listening to it gnawing over and over. And then they would jump up and light a candle and nothing would be there. And no sign of anything either. Right. And it's not just one of them, it's several of them that are dealing with this. And this is how this starts out. It's very primitive in terms of its its interaction. small, small energy. Right. But according to Richard William Bell's account of Our Family Trouble, which was the earliest written one, although published at the same time in Ingram's book, they began to communicate with this thing pretty early on, even when it was still in this primitive stage, posing questions to it that could be answered like simple math questions. And that sort of thing that would be answered in terms of knocks or raps.
1: Yeah. Well, haven't you done this with a neighbor? Probably not. But you'll hear some knocking. Maybe they're readjusting a painting on the wall or something and you hear some knocking and you knock and then they knock back. Like, oh, isn't that fun? Yeah. That's what's happening here. Except they're hearing scratching on the wooden bedsteads, which is kind of the bed frame, I believe, and the furniture and the walls and what sounds like fingernails or claws kind of scratching lightly. And so... You can imagine in the pitch black darkness now there's no night lights there's no digital clock going it's pitch black it's a little unnerving but they decide like what if you knock back and then it would answer and then it started to escalate you think like well, let's ask it a question how many family members are in this house can you tell us how many family members by knocking and it would give the correct amount of knocks and then from there you can start to ask it yes or no questions answer once for yes knock twice for no, and it would get these questions right. And so you're feeding this thing, you're interacting with it, and that seems to be a source of trouble for them later on. The first thing that popped into my mind was Mr. Ed.
0: <laughs> Which applying uh, the no, but that's that was a because, horse that could yeah. count with his hoofs. Uh, actually, he talked, but, he, it, <laughs> but but it was a gag a long time ago, yeah, to teach horses to do math and they would clomp with their hooks.
1: No, make a we note of that because the there is a famous horse nowadays that he could do math problems. You could say, like, what's five plus seven? And he'd paw the ground 12 times, you know. Yeah. So that's a trick, but that's a, a nonverbal communication. Keep in mind, that's what's starting here is nonverbal communication, but seemingly intelligent knocks. Now, you might have some people that are skeptics who might be thinking like, well, these are just animal noises. Well, sometimes it happens. My grandfather always used to knock for pack rats. Now, when I was hanging out with him and he had a very large uh, wooden garage, it was like two stories, and sometimes mice would get in and pack rats, and he would knock on a post and they would tap back. I actually never heard them tap back, but he said like, well, I'm checking for pack rats. And he wasn't joking around because... Animals will, of course, make noises. Now, what's different here is that it seems to be intelligent communication, meaning they're knocking, they're knocking back. You can start to ask it questions. And unlike animals, this happens all night. And what's great about this story, if it is kind of paranormal, it's just like, well, that happened six years ago, it happened again last month, and then we never heard about it, or you never hear about it for years later. This is every night, and it starts to increase in frequency all night, every night.
0: You know what else this reminds me of? Again, it comes from the fictional world, but interstellar, for those of you who've <laughs> right. seen that. Yeah. The nonverbal communication, the reason that it's nonverbal is because it's hindered by a disconnect between where the two parties are. Yes. And I think that's a really fascinating idea. I mean, that's why Morse code is the most basic thing. The ship turns over, the Poseidon adventure or whatever, and you're <laughs> you're inside, you yeah. can't see, and you have no electrical means of communication or other type of communication.
1: What do you do? You tap. It's really a breakthrough, for nonverbal signal communication and if Amelia Earhart had known it she'd be alive today possibly. So after this it starts to have a voice and the voice
0: starts out very faint and kind of raspy. It starts out with whispers to John Bell Sr. and it's hard to make out and then it starts developing and developing. It's almost as though this thing is gaining strength and so we're following a pattern here. When, you, If you go back to the shooting of this weird creature out in the cornfield, and then you start to have these things happening at the house, and they start out just as knocking, and then they evolve into a voice, but the voice starts out very weak. So there's this metamorphosis happening, which is yeah. disconcerting to say the least, because All it leads to is something
1: gaining strength and power. Pointing to fiction, where I believe they get a lot of that from real-life legend and lore. Not saying they're all true events, but maybe it's inspiring some. It's Voldemort. He's a giant pimple on the back of someone's head. You have to start off small, or it's like the vampire Lestat. After have been lying in the swamp, drained of his blood, he's eating lizards and bugs in the swamp, crawling over his face, trying to regain his strength so he can return to his former self. But it's like, that's a very common uh, trope, I guess. Yes. But what we're seeing here, like you're saying, is that these whispers are being heard then, not just by John Bell, but also other members of the family, I believe, Mostly the two boys, because I think they were doing the most of the communicating with the knocking and the rapping, but they're interacting. That's the point here. And what Scott's trying to say is that the more interacting you're doing, either it's emboldening this thing or you're actually unwittingly giving it strength. So now that we hear the whispers are happening and they're kind of unintelligible, they start to become more clear. So now they've figured out that they can actually communicate with it. And someone
0: decides to ask it a more sophisticated question. And that question is, and this is according to Richard Bell's account, in Our Family Trouble, who are you and what do you want? The reply was, I am a spirit. I was once very happy, but have been disturbed. All right, so now they've started this, in a way, their own investigation. What is happening here? And how do we deal with this? So you can imagine the the framework of all the events that have led up to this, like I was just saying. The issue is, this is kind of an embarrassing problem. It's not something that you want to
1: go tell everybody is going
0: on at your house.
1: Well, obviously, as we've seen, like with a sludge entity, you will start losing friends and contact with family members. So it's not something you want to be telling everybody because a lot of people are just not going to be able to handle it well and they're going to shut you out. And in this small community, you don't have a lot of options. You rely on your neighbors. You traveled there together with family and friends. That's how they moved out to the West in these groups for safety. You start alienating people or making them think that you're a family of wackos. Well... You're going to be on your own, and life is going to get a lot more difficult. So John Bell Sr. at this
0: point is wanting to keep this a secret. And he's been keeping it quiet for almost a year, according to Mr. Ingram, in an authenticated history of the Bell Witch. One of the other things that has started happening, even though they've been trying to keep this quiet, is that John Bell is having a problem
1: eating. He's having some issues trying to swallow. And chewing, yeah, with his facial muscles swelling and inflammation and constriction. So he, yes, he's having trouble swallowing, drinking, chewing, those kind of things.
0: In addition to all of that, the other things that are happening now are the kids are having their hair pulled in the middle of the night. The covers are being ripped off the bed. And that's something that happens frequently to a lot of people. The covers get yanked off the bed. I mean, it's practically a ghost poltergeist cliche, Oh, r- yes. but it happens over and over and over in this story and not just to the family. As the story proceeds, it happens to everybody who comes over. Right. Slapping,
1: hair pulling, pinching, those kind of bothersome kind of things. But imagine you're trying to get some rest and some unseen forces doing that to you all night. Yeah. It wears you down to your last wits.
0: And it's not just happening at their house it will go to other people's houses as well. So that's another really important factor. Right. So it's gotten to such a point that Bell decides that he's going to seek help from him and his wife, Lucy's best friends, the Johnstons. And you had read more on them than I did, but that's James and Jane Johnston. Yeah, yeah, I actually mentioned
1: this earlier in the show. Jane Johnston was first told the secret by Lucy Bell, the wife of John Bell Sr. And just to kind of paint the picture here, they didn't want to tell anybody Because according to Dr. Jim Brooks' book, as we said, he's the descendant of the Johnston family, the Bell family considered the presence of the witch to be something almost shameful. It did not wish the matter to be talked about. And all of their closest friends were sworn to secrecy. So basically, they're having to tell other people because they want help with this. And there's no ghost hunting team you can call or look up on the internet that will come kind of solve this for you. So he's reaching out to his friend who has a lot of knowledge of the Bible to say, hey, there's definitely something here. If you come over and spend the night, you'll sample it. Lucy tells Jane Johnston later in the day, James Johnston is told, and then John Bell Sr. says, okay, why don't you come over? I guarantee this will happen if you spend the night, and then let us know your thoughts on this. And he does.
0: Yeah, and with regard to the religious background of the area— All of the families that were around there were part of the initial stages of apparently both the Methodist movement and the Baptist movement. There was a Baptist reverend named Sug Fort, who is described as a pioneer Baptist minister. And then there was also a Reverend James and a Reverend Thomas Gunn, who are listed as pioneers of Methodism, which is something I should ask my brother-in-law who has a doctorate (laughs) In (laughs) In, theology and as a Methodist minister himself. But it's a very religious community. And when you call for help, that's the help that you're calling for in this situation. right? Well, the Johnstons came over and spent the night, both of them, at the Bell House. And this is an account of what happened that evening. And this is from Ingram's book, An Authenticated History of the Bell Witch. This is on page 139 of the anthology book I mentioned earlier. As soon as all were in bed and the lights extinguished, the frightful racket commenced and presently entered Mr. and Mrs. Johnson's room with increased demonstrations, stripping the cover from their bed. Mr. Johnson was astounded and sat upright in bed in wild amazement, but he was a man of strong faith and cool courage, and recovering from the confusion, he collected his wits and commenced talking to the specter, adjuring it to reveal itself and tell for what purpose it was there. The effect of the entreaty convinced Mr. Johnson that the demonstrations came from an intelligent source of some character, but beyond this he had no conception whatever. He, however, insisted that Mr. Bell should let the matter be known and call in other friends to assist in the further investigation. This was agreed to, and there was no end to the number of visitors and investigations. So now this is getting real serious. It's getting beyond essentially what the Johnston family is telling the Bell family is, we need to call whoever we can to get this dealt with. So that's the next course of action is to get more of the townsfolk in there, whoever can help out and find out what is
1: going on with these disturbances at the bell house. Exactly, because it's not just rapping that's kind of unusual, like, well, that's a strange phenomenon. We have a really smart packer out here who can answer mathematical questions and knows how many people are in the house. What we're describing here is that it starts off as rapping and then it's the whispers and then it's a raspy voice that's kind of hard to hear, but becoming more and more intelligible As you try to converse with it, and then the raspy voice changes to something soft and pleasing to hear. And then over time, in a short period of time, the voice starts to sound like a woman's voice. And now you are able to fully converse with it. It's not just whispers, it's like a disembodied voice that you can ask questions and it will talk to anyone at any time. But mostly at night, and I believe mostly when the lights are out.
0: That's correct. And so at this point, now that they realize that they can extrapolate data from it and find <laughs> no, out. That's a very Yes.
1: you know, Clinical you, way of saying that. Yes. Yeah.
0: Thank you. I'm trying to be clinical. Right. They can get information and yeah. they, they've already tried to ask it what it is. And so far, all it's said is it's a disturbed spirit. Okay. That's, <laughs> most ghosts, they maybe start out that way. You know, I don't know.
1: I don't like the disturbed part. I'll tell you that. <laughs> I w- I'd rather have the happy ghost. I want Casper there yeah. who can answer questions and wants to hang out and be friendly.
0: Good point. Well, this is not Casper, and it becomes clear over time why it's there. Actually, I shouldn't say that. It's not why, but who it's after. That's right. And the two people that it says that it is after is old Jack, which is what it calls John Bell Sr., the patriarch of the family.
1: Right. In olden days, Jack was often a substitution for the name John and kind of interchangeable, but Jack's kind of a catch-all name as well.
0: Here's a quote from the book regarding the witch's opinion of Lucy and Old Jack. She actually called Lucy Old Luce, and Jack Old Jack. The witch was devoted to Old Luce, describing her as a good woman, but manifesting a great aversion for Old Jack, John Bell Sr. He was most detestable and loathsome in the eyes of the witch, for which no cause was ever assigned. But she often declared her purpose of killing him before leaving the place. So she's got it out for John Bell Sr., But that's not all. She's also after Betsy Bell, or Elizabeth Bell, the daughter. And frequently, she was attacking Betsy Bell. There would be screams coming from her room. And as soon as they would light a candle and go in there, there'd be nothing there. But she would have red marks on her face. She would have been having her hair pulled. And this was consistent with what the other children in the family were reporting as well. However, Betsy was more of a focus. As we mentioned a while ago, several of these books by the Bell family, these multi-generational books... They went to Betsy Bell when she was older and interviewed her on the subject, and she maintained all the details that had been told through family lore. Right. So that's the interesting thing about the focus of this thing. But they can't really figure out why. Now, according to all the books, granted, they're Bell family books. John Bell was an upstanding guy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Sure. But there's also some dark stories about him. And he was at one point prosecuted for... Basically being a loan shark, making a high interest loan to someone. There was a story that he may have killed an overseer at the farm that he used to have in North Carolina before he moved away, and that would have been the death of a slave. And there's been other aspersions cast on his character, and it's hard to know historically what's accurate and what's not. It's not something that we have the time to dig into in the few weeks that we touch on these subjects.
1: Well, I don't think you'd find anything conclusive anyway that couldn't be debated today. So there's nothing that's going to solve any arguments here. What we do know is that he was very successful back in North Carolina. His house, as described as about a story and a half tall with six rooms and maybe two hallways. So it was very substantial and nice compared to the... The new house in Tennessee. Exactly, yes. The one in the Red River community there was... He had some means. That doesn't prove to his character other than he wasn't riffraff. He may not have been the nicest guy, but at least he was seen as an upstanding, at least, contributing member of the community.
0: It's hard to make a clear connection between a specific event in his past... And the reason that he might have been afflicted with this vengeful spirit.
1: We'll never know. Yeah. So we don't know what this thing knows. One interesting thing, though, is that this entity, whatever you want to call it, seems to be omniscient. Yes. So maybe it knows something the rest of them don't. Or maybe it just seems vengeful in its antics anyway. It's a trickster element. There's a vengefulness and a pettiness of sorts. Well, we, and we should talk about that because
0: as it continued, they went on to ask it over and over again, who was it and where did it come from? And it seemed to give them all kinds of different information. One of the many answers it gave, this is from page 26 of the Bellwitch Anthology, the paper version. We have it on Kindle as well, so we can't always cite the location, but How were you disturbed and what makes you unhappy? The reply to this question was, I am the spirit of a person who was buried in the woods nearby and the grave has been disturbed. My bones disinterred and scattered and one of my teeth was lost under this house and I am here looking for that tooth. Here's the weird thing about this. This actually (laughs) lines up apparently with a story. Because in this area, there were a lot of mounds, and there still are Native American burial grounds. That's right, yeah. And back then, they weren't necessarily treated with the respect that is automatically due them these days. And in some cases, things were disinterred with a lack of respect. Right. And at some point, a young man brought some bones into the bell house from one of these mounds, Uh including a jawbone, which he then threw against the wall and a tooth fell out of it down into the floorboards. Wow. So the story jibed with a pre-existing event. Yeah. They went looking for the tooth because they believed what this spirit had said, and they thought, well, maybe this will assuage this thing, whatever it is. Yeah. Couldn't find anything. But it didn't matter because either all of these stories are true, if you believe any of this at all, <laughs> yeah. or none of them are. Right. It's just messing with them. And this goes to the trickster component that you were just talking about. On another occasion, it was asked by the Reverend James Gunn what it was, and instead of the story about the tooth, it said the following, I am the spirit of an early immigrant who brought a large sum of money and buried my treasure for safe keeping until needed. In the meanwhile, I died without divulging the secret, and I have returned in the spirit for the purpose of making known the hiding place, and I want Betsy Bell to have the money. Mm-hmm. So now it's telling a treasure story. Yeah. And these people got real interested in this. And she provided a whole description about where they could find this treasure on a remote corner of John Bell's land. They all got together. She made a complete description of what to look for, where they would find it. They went out, found this huge flat rock that they had to unearth. They lift up the rock. They're digging all day. They dig down a hole, I believe, that was huge, like six feet by six feet by six feet. There may be some symbology there, by the Mm, way, mm. which we'll get to in part two. But they never found anything. Nothing was there. They come back to the house after all of this work that they did to get to this treasure. And the spirit is laughing, making fun of them, and detailing everything they did all day long, every little thing that happened to them, as though it was there watching them.
1: Well, it was, if you believe this part of the narrative.
0: Well, life was rough back then. You know, William Johnston, the patriarch of the family that was closest to the Bells, was the first one to settle in what is now the town of Adams. The other families they were traveling with stayed behind near present-day Clarksville and built a stockade called Renfro Station. Shortly after that, Renfro Station was attacked by the Chickasaw, and they all got massacred except for one woman who hid out in the bushes.
1: Yeah, we really have nothing to complain about with our own family trips. Well, that ties in directly with what we've been learning in our latest Great Courses Plus series, The American West, History, Myth, and Legacy, and the lecture, The West in the Colonial Era. As Professor Allett says, the big story of the English colonial era is the lack of Western history. Even by the time of the Revolution, after nearly 170 years of settlement, nearly all the English-speaking colonists still lived 100 miles or less from the ocean, and only the very hardiest minority had ventured beyond the Appalachians. And it was really interesting to hear how generally frightened the New England
0: colonists were of the unexplored West. The colonial-era narratives often describe the Western frontier and beyond as kind of a hell on Earth. Their religious mindset had them thinking that the wilderness is where the devil lives and where Jesus was tempted. And they were certainly right to be afraid because the interior of the continent was a really dangerous place to live. (laughs)
1: Well, I'm sure the Bell family was starting to think that the devil was actually living at their place. But all this fascinating info is just one of the many reasons we love The Great Courses Plus, because there's almost always a course that connects to the subjects we cover. And I have to keep reminding myself that it's
0: not just super interesting courses on history and science they have over there, but there's tons of instructional courses, too, where you can learn or brush up on a skill like photography, drawing, cooking, or learning a new language, or even how to play the guitar. Wait a minute, they they have guitar?
1: You gotta supply your own guitar. Oh, okay. Right, well, we think you'll really get a kick out of learning something new, just like we do. And all you have to do right now to check them out for a whole month for free, and I mean unlimited access to everything they offer, is go to our special URL. That's right. To start your free month today, go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends. Remember, that's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends. I'm gonna learn stairway no sir no it isn't no it is not it is not grave robbing if she's my grandmother what oh i'm mrs sawbones and you're listening to the astonishing legends podcast with scott philbrook and forrest burgess i now return you to the show
0: getting more specific about Kate or the character known as Kate. Well, Well, let's find out who she is. Well, we do need to find out who she is and why she's named Kate. We talked a little bit just now about who she liked and disliked and who she was after in the family. She was after John Sr. and she was after Betsy for unknown reasons, reasons that remained unknown all the way through this entire mystery. Now, John Jr., she had an unusual relationship with. She was very respectful of him. He was considered a very intelligent, well-educated, and thoughtful man. And she would engage in discourse with him for long periods of time about complex subjects. But the thing about John Jr. is that later in the story, he and Kate became antagonistic. But even when they did, and he would confront her very directly, verbally, she never assaulted him or did anything... To him, like she did to Joel, who was the other younger brother, who she beat. Right. And also, I can't remember if she actually beat Drury. I don't know how you spell it. (laughs) D-R-E-W-R-Y. Drury... (laughs) <laughs> uh, it's a weird name. Well, you're from the uh, South. No offense to anyone yeah. out there with that name. I just don't know how to say it. No, it's not a uh, uh,
1: a common name.
0: But th- that guy was so traumatized by this whole event that he never married, went and lived by himself and died alone and was reportedly kind of shell-shocked the whole rest of his life.
1: You're bringing up something, though, that confounds me and probably a lot of the listeners. I, I'm not that confounded because I've been <laughs> reading about it. Concern it! I'm confounded! Because <laughs> here's the deal. <laughs> Why is she treating some people poorly and some people with seeming respect, but also with antagonism. That's the mystery of this presence to me. And one of the
0: things that I have to say about it is that when I first started reading it, it didn't have any common ground with any other kind of paranormal event that we've studied so far. Yeah. And the Ark didn't find a whole lot of similar ground in any other cases either, maybe with the possible exception of the Enfield poltergeist, which was, I believe, proven a hoax. So that's one thing to consider there. This case stands alone in terms of the behavior of this spirit, whatever it was, which is actually a misnomer, I think, in my opinion, for this spirit or being or whatever it is.
1: Well, let's back up here because again, it's one of those things where you first hear the story and the title, that's all you know about it, the bell witch. And it's like, wow, that seems like a, a famous Southern folklore witch story. And it is, but it's not actually an individual witch per se. And it doesn't really have to do with modern practices of Wicca or really even witchcraft. What you have to understand going into this story is that witch is a generalized umbrella term of the time. So I found a pretty good description here. Now, this is in the page one of uh, Dr. Jim Brooks's book, Bell Witch Stories You Never Heard. And as as we mentioned before earlier at the top of the show, he's the fifth generation family member of the Johnstons. And so Dr. Jim Brooks in his book uh, has a good paragraph here explaining the definition of a witch. And he starts off saying, in this book, you will find stories you have never before heard about a spirit known from the early 1800s until today as the bell witch. It was not, however, a witch in the sense that we think of witches. At one time, witches were believed to have a spirit that did their bidding and spied for them. Long ago, such spirits were known as a witch spirit or simply as a witch. One of the elderly people that Ingram interviewed, Nancy Johnston Ayers, herself referred to the spirit as Kate Batts' witch, meaning a spirit that did Kate Batts' bidding. At that time, at the turn of the 19th century, it could have been... A witch itself, a person practicing witchcraft as we know it today, that's kind of how we think of it today. Somebody, you know, wearing the pointy hat. Yeah, pointy hat, cauldron, riding a broom. <laughs> broom, yep. Margaret hat. Hamilton. I think yeah. that's exactly, yes, yeah. witchy poo from, uh, yeah, the H.R. Witchy poo, a thousand times creepier than <laughs> exactly. Margaret Hamilton from The Wizard of Oz. But in this sense, though, at this time, it could also mean a spirit that somebody who is, has the knowledge to conjure such a spirit could get to do their bidding. Now, when you conjure a spirit like this, not to put you on the spot, because I'm not convinced you know the answer to this. Oh, I'll convince you. More than anybody does. Oh, I'll baffle you through this, yeah. Uh, (laughs) yeah.
0: (laughs) Well, my question is, when you conjure a spirit like that, are you conjuring something with independent thought?
1: From what I've studied and read extensively, old volumes and texts and grimoires, The answer is yes, and I haven't done all that other stuff. I have done a little reading about it. So
0: it's different from a golem or a tulpa or that kind of situation. Yeah,
1: no, no, because we've been banding about the word tulpa just because it's fun to say, like smaug. The deal is that with a tulpa, and again, there's a lot of debate about the veracity and and the authenticity as a Tibetan thought form that you create through intense meditation and through intense concentrated thought, but anybody can do it. If you're an adept, you could learn how to do this practice and procedure. One weird thing I read on the internets is that there are a lot of bronies, middle-aged dudes who are into My Little Pony, who are also now tulpa masters. Okay, so what okay. you're telling
0: me right now is that there are bronies <laughs> into ponies that make tulpas. <laughs>
1: That's exactly, to bronies, yes. Yeah. I don't know whether you can junk that any way you want. Yeah, yeah. The point is that that is a type of entity that's created. And I guess it's kind of a hobby now with people trying to create an imaginary friend well, in a and, really weird way. And yes. Which
0: show was we were just doing? We dove into this a little bit. I can't remember what it was, but I stumbled across a forum that was super bizarre with all the people talking about... Yeah. With all due respect, if you are a tulpa master, great, but it was just about, my topo seems to be depressed. Oh, yeah, it won't no, no, come no, no. out with me anymore. It's,
1: I was just like, what am I reading here? It's a movement. It's another thing, except this one happens to be metaphysical. And I don't know the outcome of this because the idea is that this thing... If you believe in all that to its fruition, this thing does achieve independent thought and at that point must be destroyed because now it's an entity out in the world it can do. Imagine a rainbow colored strawberry smelling pony burning the cities of the earth it can get out of hand. So, I know for a fact there were episodes
0: of Teen Titans where this <laughs> yeah. kind of thing happened and right. because I watched it with my son, I don't think I realized it might be connected to something that was going on in the real world.
1: No, I didn't realize the scope of it. So, it's kind of a popular term now, of course, in the Zeitgeist as you might say. It was actually featured on Twin Peaks: The Return as a as an item and and I believe I, yeah, I want to see can... that. I haven't seen it yet. I, I have yeah. mixed feelings about David I Lynch. I know that's a sacrilegious thing to say, but No, no, no. no I don't um, think it's But I, I, I am I, interested in seeing it. Again to bring this around to an entity that does your bidding. The golem was created by medieval Prague rabbi. Everything used to point to Scotland. Now it's all going back to Prague. It's going back to (laughs) Prague. We talked about this a little bit. There's a a famous old synagogue there and cemetery, one of the city's greatest attractions, aside from the uh, astronomical clock, which is cool. Many claim actually that the golem that the rabbi created is still there, but they will not show it to anybody. For the obvious reasons, which is you don't need a, an indestructible clay monster doing your bidding.
0: Yeah, well, some people do.
1: That was a more mechanical thing because the, the legend is that you write down its, your instructions for it on a piece of paper and you roll it up, put it in its mouth, and it does the instructions. It was originally created by the rabbi to protect the Jewish people. But of course, I think in the wrong hands, imagine a a Nazi SS golem. So coming back around to Kate. So here's what Yeah, exactly. To answer your question, it's not really like those things. It is, I guess, through conjuring, through talismans, through quote unquote witchcraft, because you are using it to do your evil deeds, it is something you have coerced into helping you. Or it's just evil and it wants to do that anyway. But it's something that basically you are in cahoots with to do not-so-nice things to other human beings. All right, so the big
0: picture is <laughs> yes. the types of witches we have at yeah. this time. How would you describe, taking all into what you just said into account, what are we saying that the possibility is for the existence of this thing?
1: Well, people saw her as a witch type. And so, as we said before, it's like any strong, independent woman in a time where that's not really expected or tolerated, people have suspicions about you. They just, you're a witch. Right. That's, a, again, an umbrella term. So what we're talking about here is it could be the person, possibly Kate Batts. It could be the spirit that was called the witch that did Kate Batts' bidding, or it could be both of them. So but it can to, uh, also
0: be something completely independent. Exactly. Right? It could
1: be the individual who's just Which doing witchcraft. Which is what witchcraft. I think this is. Right.
0: If this is real, if you believe any of yeah. this at all, in my opinion, this thing was completely independent of Kate Batts. Let's talk a little bit about...
1: Right. This. They didn't really have the term or use the term entity back then as we do now is to think of it as like, well, it's a spirit form, but really witch was just used to describe something supernatural, a supernatural force. So they just called it, yeah, it's the witch.
0: All right. Well, let's get down to this Kate thing. We've been calling it Kate for a while and haven't really explained that. So the reason that it was known as Kate was because that was a name that it adopted. In my opinion, based on reading uh, the books in the anthology and looking at the bigger picture of the story, I feel like that was just a label that finally stuck that didn't necessarily apply to the origins of this demon or spirit or whatever it was. Because they had conversations with it, and we already told you the trickster nature of it. How at first it said that it was an an angry Native American whose tooth was under the floor. Then it said it was a spurned immigrant that had left a treasure on the property. Then it said, it's just saying whatever. And I think finally it made a, what I perceived almost as a joke, that, you know, I'm Kate Batts' witch. Right. And from that point on, they just called it Kate. Because it's like, okay, we need to label this thing. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and here's the thing about Kate Batts, to the point that Forrest just made. Kate Batts was a local resident. Who was eccentric, extremely eccentric. And I've read multiple descriptions of her, both from the anthology as well as some sources online. All our sources will be listed with these episodes. And the bottom line is she was married to a man named Frederick Batts. And Frederick was handicapped. He was uh, essentially yeah. immobile, I believe. It required a high level of maintenance. And she had to run their farm and their business and all that kind of stuff. And apparently was good at it. Yeah, Like everyone else in the area, they did have slaves as did all the other people. Right. So I don't want to gloss over that. That was a fact of life in this story and, and with all the characters involved. There were slaves wrapped up in the story as well who had folklore that was associated with the Bell Witch right? too. Right. And all of that's very important culturally, I think. that's historically should be remembered. But the thing about Kate is that I guess she's sort of described as a larger woman who was very funny and she, quote unquote, would put on airs. And yeah. I love that expression. <laughs> yeah. It's something that some people in some of my extended family still use to this day when they're describing people who are pretending to be more than they are. Right. From a cultural standpoint, and in terms of the local society in Adams, Tennessee, she was perceived as kind of pretending that she was aristocratic. And yeah. part of what she did with that, and this is Kate Batts, the real person, mm-hmm. but, part of what she did with that was invoke all these made-up words, kind of like you. Right. She would just... <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know? uh, but uh, yeah. I, I
0: love your words. What did test say they're called? Neologism?
1: Ne- ne- yes, neologism. neologisms. Neologisms. I guess. I, I don't you know. know Early you told me off what? the air, Shakespeare did it, so why not? That's it? what I'm saying. He made complaint right to him, okay? <laughs> he made up a lot of stuff. And even that's contested. People are now... There's articles... It doesn't matter what they're... <laughs> or was it Sir Francis Bacon. So yeah. anyway. yeah. <laughs> so what
0: I'm saying about Kate was one of the stories I read about her was... Hilarious, And it, my impression of her was that she was actually a pretty good-natured soul and a friendly person. Like you I know, said, for that, a slave uh, owner, by the way, right. I'm not glossing over that fact, and I don't want to be perceived as glossing over that fact. I'm just talking yeah. about independent of, you know, what was going on in society at the time. Kate was regarded as sort of a form of comic relief, almost, in the community. Yeah. And I didn't read things that suggested that she was evil or a bad person. What I read, for example, was... There was uh, one particular event at a church where a man who was particularly given over to Wicked Ways had come in and fallen on his knees, and the congregation was in the process of guiding him through his being saved. And he was down on his hands and knees at the front of the sanctuary. And she came storming in and ran up, and as he was on his hands and knees, almost in like a table position, she sat down on him and squashed him down onto the floor, at which point (laughs) he started— yelling about, save me, the Lord is saving me, help me, and it it got really comical, and she apparently was spewing malaprops the whole time, and everyone in the congregation started having a hard time not laughing. Right. And they got that thing, which is the classic thing that anyone who's ever been to church knows. When you get tickled and you're in church, it just gets worse and worse and worse until you cannot take it and you have to run out or burst out laughing or whatever. That's how this was described, that people just ran out of the church to burst out laughing on the streets as she sat on this person and eventually she got off of him and, you know, he was saved and it was all that kind of thing. (laughs) But to me, it's a very comical scene and I'm sure that people made fun of her because she was in this relationship with her husband who uh, was unable to really take care of himself and she had to run their house and their business, their farm. Right, right. So she was a strong independent woman is what I think. And I think she was a little bit eccentric in her nature. And so when it came time for people to point fingers and say, oh, this is a witch or it's old Kate Bat's witch, coming back to your definition of what the witch is, whether it's something that she created, it's different from the idea of her sitting in a dark room with a cauldron, you know, <laughs> putting Eye of Newt in the, you know, that's not what's happening here. No, no, no. And no. it seemed like this demon or spirit that was present in the Bell household it knew everything. It knew everyone around. It knew everyone's business. Strangers would show up at the house that they had never met before Who, because the story had become kind of famous. Strangers would show up and before they would cross the door, Kate, the witch's disembodied voice would come out and say the name of the stranger, their background, oh, hey, this gentleman is married to a woman that he stole away from her parents' house and nearly broke her arm when he pulled her through the window to take her off for marriage. And the guy hadn't even spoken a word yet. And then he said... That, that's true. That is what happened. Yeah. And so she was aware of everything. So when it came time to conjure a name of who she was, she knew that the whole town thought Kate Bats was kind of a nut. So she said, I'm Kate Batts Switch. It falls right in line with all the other things she says. Right. Which in reality, I think all it indicates is that she is everything and everyone or nothing at all.
1: You're talking about the spirit now. The spirit. Yes. Yeah. Well, there's two ways to look at this because you could say this is just a folkloric story. So it ties into the folklore. You know what I'm saying? The the omniscient town narrator, like our town, you know, Jason Robards, whoever's narrating the play, they're the overall omniscient narrator, knowing all the characters, explaining who they are to everybody. That's who the spirit is here. Yeah, the lamplighter. Very good. So in this sense, if it's a story, you could look at it that way. If it's just a story, well, that's kind of what the spirit is, and it's basically putting people together, butting heads, causing chaos, and having a laugh at it the whole time kind Of manipulating people, but knowing everybody's business, so that's one way to look at it. And choosing Kate Batts as a good foil, yeah. I mean, I don't know if you saw the movie Cold Mountain came out in 2003 with no, Jude Law, you know, but I, it's I about, a, see it. yeah, it's about, I know a what it's about. Yeah, he's my, returning. My and, wife
0: read it and told me a little bit about it, but I didn't yeah. get a chance to so, ever read it. So it's, it's around Charles the Charles Frazier, I think,
1: exactly. It. So it's after this time, but it would be the Civil War, so 1865 to 70 would be the time frame. And he's out in the mountains and he meets a mountain woman, and she's into herbalism, local folk remedies, and she's got herbs hanging and uh, she's cutting goats open for the blood and, and the meat. And uh, this was something that was followed to a certain extent
0: by some of the pineys and, and then Jersey yes, Devil story exactly. As well. yeah. So
1: I could see a woman like that who's living by herself. She's in her mid fifties, sixties, she's kind of a crone she seemed to be and doing who knows what in her cabin with weird you know herbal smells coming out of it. And people thinking, well, that she's up to witchcraft. Right. Flowers
0: and sticks coming out of her hair. Just
1: all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So I could see that. That is not Kate Batts here. Because if it were further west and later in the period, say like the 1860s to 1870s, she's kind of like what I see as the strong women pioneer characters of the Wild West. Again, much later But Calamity Jane, Molly be Damned, all these great ladies of the West who uh, were just strong and fierce and independent and uh, as tough as any man, well, they weren't considered witches at that time because, again, that's slightly different. It's West. We're getting out of this kind of uh, early 19th century folk tradition that's still going on. So that's what you're seeing here. And again, it's not too long after the American Revolution. And as we'd mentioned before, people had not moved very far West yet. It's still wild territory. It's the desert, the wilderness. And you have this really outlandish character that everybody kind of loves, but I could see getting back to this spirit and knowing everybody's business. You know what? That's good enough. Just call me Kate witch, or just Kate.
0: Because essentially, in terms of this thing's power, it seems like it doesn't really think humans are going to understand what it is anyway. That's a good point. Because when you read about all the interactions— Essentially, when it's saying, I'm Kate Batts, it's kind of just saying, What? You just call me whatever. Yeah, you're never well, going to, it's like Rip Torn in defending your life. Yeah. I could tell you, but you're not going to understand. <laughs> you know, what do you, when he says, What are you reading? This is in the, yeah. he's in purgatory, essentially. Yeah. He's sitting at his desk and Albert Brooks says, What are you reading? And Rip Torn is like, Well, I could tell you, but you're not going to understand. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and exactly. that's yeah. kind of the impression I get from this spirit. Right. It's like,
1: fine, call me Kate. And there's two other factors. One, as we've talked about quite a bit before, there is power in a name, and knowing an entity's name. So that's the one thing the priest tries to do in an exorcism, get the name of who you're actually dealing with, because then you you know their weaknesses, their strengths, you have a little bit of power over it. And guess what? They're tricksters, they're deceivers. This is more and more sounding to me like a a demon or a bag or ball of demons. Well, it's funny you should say that, because there is a section in this story— that, like all
0: sections of this story, all the aspects of it, defies description. Because for the bulk of the time that Kate, we're going to call her Kate from here on out here, when we, when we refer to Kate primarily, we are referring to the Bell Witch. We are not referring to the actual Kate Bats. And we're going to talk a little bit more in part two about some of the legends that were built up about the real Kate Bats and possible issues that she and her husband had with John Bell. There is something there, but it also could just be folklore that was born after the spirit called itself Kate. But for for the sake of the rest of this conversation, at least for the next few minutes, Kate is the Bell Witch. However, there was a point at which multiple voices and characters showed up in the Bell household. This did not last a long time because it feels like an escalation of whatever's happening because now you're having essentially a party. These four characters showed up who called themselves... Are you ready for this? Black Dog, Mathematics, (laughs) Psychography, and Jerusalem. Wait, you
1: sure these aren't heavy metal band names? I know. Okay. Well,
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah it's right. definitely a Led Zeppelin song. Yeah, they're, and, uh, <laughs> they're um, good, yeah. Yeah, Black Dog was essentially the leader of these characters. And I'm reading here from uh, page 33 of the anthology book, and this comes out of Our Family Trouble, the original publication. Black Dog assumed to be the head of the family and spoke in a harsh feminine tone. And by family, they're, they're calling it the witch family, or Richard Williams Bell is and spoke in a harsh feminine tone. The voices of mathematics and psychography were different, but both of a more delicate feminine tone. Jerusalem spoke like a boy. So, mm. and they were prone to all kinds of bad behavior, including getting drunk and filling the house with the stench of booze. These spirits, you're saying? Yeah, the spirits were on the spirits. And <laughs> so it, they would they wow. would say that they had taken whiskey from John Gardner's stillhouse, which was four miles away. Yeah, I don't really understand how something ethereal gets drunk, but whatever. And then in addition to this, Black Dog seemed to take on the job of assigning ongoing torture to the Bell family while also sending some of these other members away to yeah. go do other things. And so they would be out and about, but someone was always left behind to torture the Bells. So there's a lot of that going on. But the thing about this is, is, and you can't tell from Our Family Trouble, Richard Williams Bell's book, you can't tell from that book how long this lasted, but you get the impression that it wasn't very long when that went by the wayside and we were back to just Kate. Yeah. So it's interesting. It's frightening. We looked up these names, and there's a lot of people done a lot of research on it. There is no clear definition of the word psychography.
1: Cypo, I think, in Greek means garden. But right. Eh, who knows? Garden gnome. I don't know what this—it's kind of a nonsense made-up word. But again, a good heavy metal band name. Yeah, It's just fascinating to me. So
0: the real question of what this thing is, what Kate is, what this creature is, if you believe any of this at all, is a question that I feel remains unanswered to this day. Just like the question of why was it particularly obsessed with John Bell Sr. and Betsy Bell, the daughter? Yeah. In addition to latching on to John Bell and making it her business to eventually destroy him completely... The other main goal of the Bell Witch was to prevent Betsy Bell from marrying the young love of her life at the time. Joshua Gardner. Joshua Gardner, a boy she went to school with, who was very handsome, well-respected apparently, and they had a crush on each other,
1: for lack of a better word, and were very enamored with each other. Now, to remind the listener, she's about 11 to 12 years old at this time? Yes, yeah. Very young when it's
0: uh, started out, I believe.
1: Well, people, again, they got started in life much earlier because life was rougher. You had, shortened and shorter. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you had a shortened life expectancy back then. Yeah. But you were also more mature earlier on. Yeah. So what we're saying is here is you're in kind of the courting, the schoolhouse crush. Right. And one of the things that
0: Richard Williams Bell says in his book, it's got very flowery language, which I read in some of our other sources was the style of the time. They were trying to mimic the writing in England and... Yeah. I- and I love it, the dialogue that's in here. But one of the things that they said about Betsy Bell was that she blossomed early. She was a very (laughs) beautiful girl. and You know, I think she was very mature and the boys were very taken with her.
1: Well, yeah, she's also uh, very smart. Yes. As you said earlier, she's into botany. She knows the names of the trees and the flowers. She's very knowledgeable. So she's no shrinking uh, wallflower here who doesn't know much about the world. She's got some uh, charisma to her.
0: Yeah. That is all very fascinating. But the question that remains is why did this thing have an obsession with preventing Betsy from marrying Joshua? Yeah. And it was a strong obsession. And I believe the quote, I, I'm not going to say it word for word because I'm not sure where it is in these books. But it basically was like, please don't marry Joshua Gardner. Please don't marry Joshua Gardner. Yeah. And that sounds like a very polite request, but this, <laughs> what else is happening yeah. is this creature is pulling her hair at night, slapping her face, ripping the covers off her bed and I believe on a was, regular basis. Yeah,
1: and I believe people were getting poked with needles. Yeah, so
0: there's a lot going on. In addition to this, Kate was frequently examined by investigators who were coming from all over the country, and in some cases yeah. the world, to try to figure out what was going on here. All of them, when they crossed the threshold, being convinced that it was a fraud. There were accusations of ventriloquism. No accusations are made in these books, but obviously something that I'm sure you, our listeners are thinking, and one of the things that I thought about, is the possibility of physical abuse and a cover-up of abuse that's internal to the family. There's just all kinds of things that could be going on here. But the parts of the details that don't lend themselves to that are, for example, Betsy would go and stay at other people's homes alone, and it would follow her there, and was witnessed by those other families. Right. While things were also happening at the house. Now, if you go to take a look at the idea that Betsy's responsible for it all, the only real problem with that is that Kate appeared to be somewhat omniscient, and in addition to that, able to essentially conduct miracles. And when I say miracles, I'm not talking about healing evangelism. What I'm talking about is she frequently produced fresh fruit, hazelnuts, and other foods out of thin air. So people would be in the room, and she would say, have some grapes. If somebody was sick that she cared about for whatever reason, Kate, the spirit, would conjure grapes. They would literally fall out of nowhere into people's laps. Hazelnuts, grapes, other fruits, which at one point I think she said, I got these in the Indies.
1: Okay, so that's interesting there. You're talking about Kate the Spirit doing this, not Betsy the Child. Right. The idea, though, is that if it's being faked by an 11-year-old girl who picked up Howdy Doody's book on ventriloquism somehow and gained this remarkable skill, and well, can, she'd need a time machine for that. But yeah, yeah, these are people living essentially out on the frontier, but somehow she's picked up this trick and is a genius. Her at, and her
0: brothers—they were all accused of. Yeah, participating exactly. All in because
1: it. right, and people saying like, "Well, you know, it's that whole poltergeist young girl thing," right? And it's like, well, if she's faking it, she's pretty darn good at poltergeist. <laughs> She's been good at having it done to people just showing up who are checking out the place and the phenomenon. Because, as we said earlier the, at the beginning, strangers were showing up and say, Hey, show me the ghost here. And something weird would happen to them. Yes. And she wasn't
0: even always home. No. The knowledge that this spirit had, that Kate had, went far beyond the knowledge that any young girl could have. Now, even though Betsy was very intelligent. Well, but prophecy
1: and predicting the future and yes. knowing people's innermost thoughts. And this is what's so scary. And who
0: strangers were
1: yeah. before they even came into the house. See, but you're, you're getting at something I think I find fascinating, and I'm sure a lot of people just find plain scary and frightening, is that it's omniscient. It knows your innermost thoughts.
0: Yes. There were no secrets in the town. And what would happen is... If something was going on, again, this reminds me of Shades of the Jersey Devil story, people were being outed by Kate. Yeah. Kate knew who was coming home drunk, who was fooling around, who was doing what to who, who ripped off this other person, and knew that not only about the locals, but people far afield who showed up to see her right. and examine her. And the other things that she knew was scripture, really, really really well. She could quote any part of the Bible that you asked her to, and frequently when the reverends were over, of which there were many in this community, she would debate with them the true meaning of Scripture, and oftentimes her points seemed to be more accurate than the point of view that they had. So it's got all that going on. She also had this amazing singing voice, a voice that no one in the family could recognize or attribute to anyone in the family, and could sing any hymn in the Bible all you had to do was ask. Word for word. So essentially you're talking about Something here, we're going to get more analytical in part two, but in order to pull this off today, you would need either a lot of education or, you know, a Google Glass with a high-speed connection (laughs) or a Siri with an earpiece. So you could come up with all this information on a global scale, because in addition to having all this kind of knowledge, conjuring fruit from thin air, conjuring hazelnuts from thin air, Kate was able to impersonate other people's voices to a point, like the T2 in Terminator, Like anyone that you wanted to do, she could impersonate. For example, there was a story of these Shakers coming up the road. Now, the Shakers, I'm just going to read the first couple of sentences on the Shakers from the Wikipedia entry here. The United Society of Believers in Christ's second appearing, more commonly known as the Shakers, is a millenarian restorationist Christian sect founded in the eighteenth century in England. They were initially known as Shaking Quakers because of their ecstatic behavior during worship services. So these guys apparently lived in the community there, and periodically they would come down the road and and they would stop by the Bell house and the Bells would feed them because Lucy Bell was a very magnanimous woman and they were a generous family by all these descriptions. Of course, I'm talking about books that were all written by their relatives
1: when I say that. Apparently, though, in, I think it's in Ingram's book where the spirit Kate says, Lucy was the finest woman to ever walk the earth. Yes. Like that. She very... had a
0: great affinity yeah. for the matriarch of the family, even though she wanted to kill the patriarch. So <laughs> yeah. how that works, I don't know. But mm. the Shakers were coming down the road And Lucy knew, I guess they could see way down the road, that they needed to prepare some food for them. And she was being very kind and going about it. But also, I guess she'd been having kind of a hard day and maybe mumbled a little something. But not too bad because she was a saint. You know, Lucy was At which point they heard outside there was a, a boy who worked for them who was a slave, a young black boy who was in charge of all the dogs on the land and he was he would be to round them up when guests would come so they wouldn't bother people they heard his voice outside calling the dogs And not only was he calling the dogs, as they were coming down the road, the Shakers, which they said had these huge hats and they're on these horses or whatever. He was sicking the dogs on the horses, like really making them go crazy. And they could hear him. They couldn't believe that this was his behavior. And so they looked out there and the Shakers had like took off down the road on the horses super fast and left. And then Kate was heard in the house laughing. The boy, whose name I believe was Dean, but I'm not sure, it was, I, I could have that wrong, but he actually was nowhere near the house at this time. He yeah. was in a field a long way away. What had happened was Kate had impersonated his voice perfectly and was tricking the dogs into their behavior, mm-hmm. which was what upset the Shakers and sent them on their way. That is just one example of what Kate was capable of doing. In other cases, she impersonated other people. And that was a story that you actually mentioned that stood out to you in Fitzhugh's book, right?
1: Yeah. First of all, I wanted to mention something about the materialization out of thin air. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and we've talked about this before, but I mentioned uh, Dr. Alexander Cannon, fascinating guy. A British physician who uh, wrote some books and gave some demonstrations in the 30s. But he and a traveling companion supposedly were in Tibet, and they were on the road, and they meet this yogi who invites them to dinner. And he, with his... Yay, boo-boo. <laughs> not that kind of, Well, oh, there not was that a, there, yogi. Okay. Yes, but there was a picnic basket. So, <laughs> okay. <The> other, you <laughs> I know spy what? a picnic basket? Yeah, that boy, the, the blurry photos guys do a whole bit on that. Yes. The point being is that he claims, Dr. Alexander Cannon, that with these advanced practices, he was able to materialize fruit that they ate. The yogi was. The yogi, not them. But he became to understand the principles later on in some of these things. The other thing, that he produced a painting off a wall of a friend in, uh, I believe, Paris. Yes, we've talked about that we before. We've talked a little about, yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and so here's a rule, though. He said, uh, this must be returned by midnight. I don't know what the borrowing fees yeah, were on right, that. right, right. It couldn't be held forever. So that was interesting. And of course, then he, he called his friend when he got back to London. The guy goes, yeah, the painting was missing for a day. Yeah. So materialization at a thin air of object is nothing new. Of course, this happened uh, a long time before Dr. Cannon's incident. Yeah, well, it was certainly not the first time No, it's, but it seems to be a capability if you believe in that kind of stuff because we saw it in Paranormal Witness, which was episode three of the first season, which is one of my favorite because it does deal with a demon terrorizing a family. The stepdad was so upset because they, uh, is about these little ceramic cats. He threw it out in the yard. They turn around. It's back on the counter.
0: Yes. Which instantaneously, uh,
1: instantaneously, which should creep you out. So, That's a great episode, uh, probably my favorite of that season. But anyway, so getting back to having tests done at the time, these two anecdotes appear on the Wikipedia page under the synopsis section, and they're both from Pat Fitzhugh's book, The Bell Witch, The Full Account. So you can read them there if you like. But the first one has to do with John Johnston, who is the son of James Johnston. Well, people want to get to the bottom of this, so he devised a test to test Betsy basically about something she couldn't possibly know about. And when I say test Betsy, if Betsy's doing this, yes. they, they asked the witch and it's like, well, okay, let's see if she can use her ventriloquism powers to get around this question. They asked the witch something only somebody in his, in the Johnston family would know back from North Carolina. And the question was, what would my Dutch step grandmother back in North Carolina say to the slaves when she thought that they messed up or did something wrong? And The witch or the Kate spirit replied, hut tut, what has happened now? In the grandmother's Dutch accent. So imagine hearing that out of thin air or coming from a freaky 11-year-old girl. Either way, it's got to be really disturbing. Yeah. It's suddenly the exact voice of a distant relative several states away. And that's not the only time something like that happened, right? No, here's the other one that's part of this anecdote in the same paragraph, which is, I think, even creepier, but along those lines. One that shows a type of interplanetary, interdimensional omniscience, which is disturbing enough. So I guess this Englishman had shown up. The word is getting out. Not that the Bells wanted it to. Again, they were pretty ashamed about this. But now so many people are getting poked and pinched and slapped around the community Word is getting out. I'd read even that people from as far as New York... It's like a Monty Python. Yeah, yes, lots of uh, slapstick comedy there. (laughs) It was freaking people out, the words getting around. So this Englishman had shown up offering to investigate. And I don't know much more about him, not even his name, but it sounds like he's a little bit skeptical and and he's going to debunk this. That's kind of the tone I'm getting. And when he's talking to the family about his English parents or his English family overseas, the disembodied voice suddenly mimics his English parents in their voice. So that's got to be strange. And I guess he stays overnight or he's there uh, all night investigating, like a paranormal show. Right. uh, (laughs) Pre 19th century style. The witch wakes him with the voices of his own parents worried about him because back in England, the witch had disturbed them with his voice. Talking about them. Does yeah. that make sense?
0: Yeah. Exactly. So now he's, It's almost like, so yeah, yeah, it's like she went over there, freaked them out, and recorded their reaction, and yeah. then came back and played that recording for him. In Tennessee. Essentially, yes. Except instead of a recording, it was a voice. And that's the thing that doesn't make sense. These are all things that you could do today if you really try. The technology Absolutely. is there. yeah. It's not a, that big a deal. I mean, it's a freaky thing to think about. Right, right. You know, maybe a magician, a David Blaine situation. You could plan all this out and make this happen. This is 17, 18, 18, 18, 19. It's not happening then.
1: So how no. do you explain all of this? Now, again, people who will totally... Take this apart and debunk it, we'll say, "Well, we don't know if any of this happened. there's no reliable written record of any of this." Well, that's true. But if you're going to take these stories as being told from generation to generation as kind of a family story, think about it this way. Look at your own family, and the stories that have been passed down about what great-great-grandpa So-and-so did, they probably don't go that far back. But my point here is that nothing like this has probably ever happened to your family. Because there are no other distractions. And we were talking about this in Kelly Hopkinsville. It's like those folks at the farm had no TV, no radio, maybe a newspaper. But what did you do? That was like all of our families back then. You played cards, you talked, you chatted, you played music if you if you had an instrument, but basically very limited entertainment. So you discussed stories. So what I'm thinking is that this thing was talked about and talked about a lot within the family, at least. Yeah. And, so, and the community. And the community. And so the major happenings, yes, a lot of the elements have probably been changed, but maybe there is some truth. That's all I'm offering here. Maybe there's some truth within the nut, the kernel of, of these stories. So apparently, though, the Englishman was so freaked out, he went back to England wrote them a letter apologizing about his skepticism. Right. <laughs> so he yeah. was like, thank you very much. You we were absolutely correct. <laughs> yeah, so he, was, he just stopped. I have no idea. Sorry, he, my he, English he, accent pales uh, in comparison I, to yours. I didn't, but uh, we're going to leave it at that. The point is that uh, other people were coming by offering to debunk this and getting so freaked out themselves.
0: Okay, so I finally picked a workout from Beachbody On Demand, and I'm starting today. I'm pretty excited. Oh, yeah? Which one did you pick? Focus T25, which is actually perfect for me because we're
1: so busy, I can get a guided workout done in just 25 minutes a day. See, that's the great thing about Beachbody On Demand. They have workouts designed for every goal, every fitness level, and schedule. And Focus T25 is one of their most popular programs, along with the ones a lot of people have already heard about, like Payo, P90X and Sanity, 21-day Fix, and the Three-week Yoga Retreat. And with all of their programs, you can start by picking one that fits your schedule, fitness level and style. And you might already be seeing one of the staff trainers at a gym you go to, and that's
0: fine. But Beachbody On Demand has many of the best trainers and fitness experts you've heard about or seen on TV, and you get to decide what you like and what works best for you. They also have a portion control focused cooking show called Fixate and over 100 recipe videos. So you can get your nutrition in line too. All right, so which one did you pick, for us? Well, I think I'm going to go with Insanity Max 30, because it's just 30 minutes a day for 60 days. Aha, I see what's going on here. You're thinking of getting in shape for our upcoming Los Angeles fan meetup. <laughs> uh, well, the actor
1: I've hired to portray me at that event is already in great shape, because he's been doing P90X3. I'm actually more concerned about all the great holiday food that's coming up, and I'd rather it help me build muscle than make me chubby until next summer. (laughs) Okay, that does sound more like
0: you. (laughs) Well, if you think it's time you got your health and fitness back on track, or you just want to look and feel great for all the upcoming holiday social events, just go check out Beachbodyondemand.com. It's a brand new service, but it already has over a million members, so that should tell you it works.
1: And then after you check them out, you can get a free trial membership just by texting the word LEGENDS to the number 303030, and you'll get full access to this entire platform for free. Once again, to get unlimited access to the entire
0: program with a free trial membership, just text the word LEGENDS to the number 303030.
1: Hey, did you see that Harry's has a newsletter magazine called Five O'Clock?
0: Actually, I did, and did you see that article about how their razor blades are made?
1: I did, and it was really interesting and had some fun animation to explain how their blades are made in their own German factory that has over 100 years of blade-making experience. I was kind of wondering how they got their blades so sharp so that not only do they last a good long while, but really deliver a close, comfortable shave. I even got my dad hooked on him, and he's super picky about his razors. Well, why don't you briefly tell everyone how it's done? They start off with some of
0: the world's best steel from Sweden, Then they put it through a tempering process where it's heated to over 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit, then immediately freeze it to minus 100 degrees, then heat it back up again. That makes the steel's nanostructure hard and strong. Then the blades are ground into a precision gothic arch angle, so they have a super sharp cutting edge that lasts. Next, the blades are washed and finished with a top-secret coating that prevents rust and helps them glide smoothly across your skin.
1: Ah, see, I was waiting for their secret ingredient that makes the blades so irritation-free. Precisely. And then finally, the blades are photographed at high
0: speed so their computers can check for quality and consistency. And that's why Harry's can confidently offer a 100% quality guarantee.
1: And at half the price of the leading five-bladed razor. Find out for yourself because Harry's is so confident you're going to love their blades. They'll give you their trial shave set for free when you sign up at harrys.com slash legends. You just pay for the shipping. That's right. Claim your free trial offer from Harry's today.
0: $13 value for free when you sign up. You just cover the shipping. Your free trial set includes a weighted ergonomic razor handle, five precision-engineered blades with a lubricating strip and trimmer blade, rich lathering shave gel, and a travel blade cover. So get your free trial set by going to harrys.com
1: legends right now. That's harrys.com legends. This is Trace Conger. Thank you for listening to Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show.
0: The other interesting thing about the traveling across the ocean and all that kind of stuff is it ties back to what we talked about earlier with the omniscience. And one of the stories that I hadn't shared yet, which I thought was really fascinating, was the retelling of a sermon that Kate the Spirit did. And that's when several people came over to the house, and somehow through conversation, it came up that somebody had missed the sermon, and Kate volunteered to retell the sermon at one of the churches from start to finish in the presence of the reverend who gave the sermon. She did that, told the entire sermon, word for word, the reverend validated the fact that it had been the exact sermon that he had written. And then when she completed that, they asked her to relay another sermon from another church from the same morning that was nearly concurrent. And she did that as well. And that reverend was at the house as well. Mm. And they both confirmed that those were their exact sermons. So this kind of stuff is being in two places at once, being able to travel great distances. In other cases, though, things seem to take a few minutes. There was a time when dear Lucy, as she called her, or old Luce, yeah. who was the matriarch that she was so fond of, had wondered whether or not a friend of the family or a fa- I think it might have even been a relative named Jessie was home yet from a trip. But she was in the house and she was just saying, like, I wonder if Jessie's back yet. And the voice came out in the house, the disembodied voice of Kate came out and said, don't you worry, Luce, I'll go see. And it left for four or five minutes. And then it came back and said, Jesse is home. And he is reading by candlelight and specified what part of his house he was sitting in. And he's home safe and don't worry about him, old Luce. Sure enough, the next morning, they meet Jesse. He either comes over or something, they talk about his trip. And uh, Lucy says, We knew you came home last night because Kate told us. And he said, yeah, I know. I was actually in the house when the door opened. And my wife looked over, and we knew that it was Kate. And then the door closed, and I guess she (laughs) left. She came and confirmed that I was there. Now, in this case, that took four minutes to go just a few miles. Right. In another case, she's going all the way across the ocean instantaneously. So I don't (laughs) understand... Yeah. And when we get into this thing it's, you know, I've said this before It's been a while I know I was a broken record Is At least the first year of our show If not two years yeah. About oh I made this And that and the other And yet my wife is a television writer right. and, and she's a comedy yeah. writer But she's worked on some sitcoms And that sort of thing And one of the What you call this scenario When you get into this What, what I was just talking about Is the logic police Because in a writer's room yeah. Especially if you're writing About something fantastical Somebody will be like Oh come on That's ridiculous A police car can't jump off A parking deck And then the other person will We'll be like really that's what's going to bother you we just had an elevator fly up into the sky you know so it's the logic police thing no
1: right the my classic example is the Larry Sanders show which I loved yeah. and they were doing a bit about the hat and the can which is basically just pink foam that they were gonna spray on Hank's head right and then Hank goes well wouldn't the brim come out first he's like you're arguing the logic of the hat and the can <laughs> like yeah it just, again it's, it's silly to be even talking about that right it's so, all kind of ridiculous.
0: and that's the part that I don't get about Kate the spirit it's yeah. like Like, okay, well, I'm going to go over here. It's going to take me a few minutes to go uh, like two miles and see if this guy's home. Or I'm going to go all the way across the ocean and freak this dude's parents out (laughs) with an impersonation and then come back and that's going to be nearly instantaneous. And what a lot of people will say, and I know I can hear them now, at our good friend Dr. Atlantis going, it's because (laughs) this is all malarkey. (laughs) Of
1: course, yeah. You know, and
0: and I get that. And I think in part two, we'll be talking about that. You know, what parts of this have veracity and what don't and the possible verification and corroboration that's coming down from other families, like you mentioned, the Johnston family. But I don't want to be, too credulous either, which is, you know, the first thing that a a devout skeptic's going to say. You know, you guys are just believing whatever this thing says. Because I'll admit, when I read the book, at first I was like, oh, this is not what I expected at all in terms of a witch story. I really didn't expect this. And then there were some things that were comical. And the conjuring of the fruit, and the making fun of people, and then the singing of hymns, and the there's just so much different stuff happening. And the tricking of all the people to go make them dig up a fake treasure. Right. It's not your classic demon behavior, necessarily. Well...
1: I mean, the trickster part is... We see this a lot from the many voluminous letters we get about, you guys believe everything. And I've certainly been seeing that on Twitter. You just believe everything. It's like, well... Really what we're doing is, again, for me personally, that guy's going to have a laugh again on Twitter at me. I'm not even going to mention his name. He knows who he is. About believing everything. It's like, well, I believe in the possibility of certain things happening or that it's possible because I can't tell you personally what is impossible anymore. So, but all we're doing here is that when we say it's like, well, this is pulling this fruit out of thin air happened before. We're not saying we believe that. What we're saying is that there are other cases where that's been, Purported where that's been claimed, uh, even documented in various manners. All we're saying is that here are some other examples of an explanation of what it might be or similar to these other situations. Or if we're looking at the situation, again, not trying to defend it and claim it as credible, what we're doing is offering explanations that we've heard of. And again, we haven't totally studied. It's just something that we've come across either through the research for the specific episode or for something else. Well, there's a bunch of different things going on. And that's another theme that we seem to be running into all the time. What's going on here? Why are there goblin elves and owls and UFOs and rainbows and sparkles and... What is happening here? Because it's not fitting any kind of logical thing. And what we say is there's no logic to fit this that we can understand or know about yet. Now, there are some things that fit on the demonic level. Extreme intelligence, frightening, scary intelligence. Demonologists will tell you that's one trait of demons. The trickster element, getting a laugh out of our pain and misery and buffoonery. Omniscience, predicting the future, reading minds, mimicry, posing as other people. Something we didn't mention before, it's like, they don't want to tell you their name. So it's hard to get that out of them because then you have a little control over them. So it's basically posing as other people, mixing lies with truth. So you don't know what to believe, but basically their big bent is to deceive you for their own pleasure. And the jollies they get is the energy from us of our distress and pain and discomfort. And it's also kind of a big laugh for them. So taking it on face value. So when you ask that, what's going on here, and specifically to the travel times, I think about the Star Trek transporter dilemma. Yeah. And we've talked about this a little bit before, but I'll go over here quickly. It's like, okay, a lot of physicists look to the logic of Star Trek as far as things possibly in the future, and some solid theoretical physics ideas. It's like the transporter. Say we're able to decompose all of your molecules, all the things that make you up, your carbon, uh, the water, all that, and we beam that in a straight shot to down to the planet and you get reformed on the planet's surface, hopefully not into solid rock. Or do we just take the information about all of you that's here and recreate you with the molecules that are already there in the second location? Well, that's the definition of
0: teleportation, right? You're, Those are the two you're ideas. You're rebuilding...
1: It's not the original that's going over; it's a copy. Those are the The original is gone, and the copy is new. Well, we don't know, but they're the same. (laughs) Well, you can get scrambled. That's the idea, though. Is that am I disassembling you here? All your molecules? No, disassemble number five. Sorry. Okay, you're one of the thousand people that have seen that.
0: A lot of people. Come on, I want to hear from our listeners who has seen and loves Short Circuit. Thank you. Moving on.
1: Yes. That's the two models, though. Is it easier? Because, well, actually, it would be easier to just recreate you because it's harder to beam something even at the speed of light. You're in transit. Yeah. Again, we're not trying to show the logic or defend this idea. We're just saying like, well, that's an idea. You're basically taking the fruit. Think about the fruit it got from the Indies. Did it deconstruct the fruit from the Indies and recreate it at the other end? Or did you like take those molecules? I'm going to ship this on the trade winds, shoot this over to the Americas, and recreate the fruit in those person's living room.
0: I think if you're going to do all
1: this stuff, being the logic police, yeah. Woo-hoo.
0: I think yeah. you're bending space and time and just doing whatever you want. And going back to the Star Trek theory, it's in the next generation there, my favorite alien was the Q, played by John DeLancey. Yeah, exactly. Who could just do whatever he wanted. He'd just hold his hand up and do kind of a, uh, right. a royal wave, yeah. and they would be transported across the universe. That is the kind of stuff that's happening here, which either means it's completely fabricated or it's just something completely beyond our comprehension. And, you know, I'll tell you where I'm leaning when we get to part two. Sure. But my personal feeling is I don't have as many problems with the logic of how these things unfold as I did before we did the Skinwalker Ranch series. Yeah, Right.
1: <laughs> yeah. That because
0: was... that was an analytical approach to things that didn't make sense. And it didn't really get them anywhere, but they confirmed that activities were happening. So... For me, I look at this in a different way now. When you come across something that seems completely fantastical, I'm sorry, I cannot just dismiss it completely. No matter how weird it is, on the other hand, and we'll talk again in part two about this a little yeah. bit, Joe Nickel did a, a really spectacular skeptical article on this story that I think has a lot of merit. And I want to talk about his what mm-hmm. his approach to how he took this apart. Right. And uh, sorry, folks, it's getting late here and a lot of planes are taking off, but we don't want to stop. So we're going to keep going. Yeah. I think I have a different view now than I did when we first started the show about these kinds of tales.
1: Yeah, exactly. So pointing to Skinwalker, you know, when you were saying, you were making the point, it's like with all this crazy stuff. Stuff's happening. It's trying to be documented with modern equipment, with real science, as much as they can, but in a real scientific method of uh, just basically information gathering and observation with a critical eye, and still strange stuff is happening. And you were saying, like, we have no idea. I said, like, well, there are some clues. And so one that we talked about, probably the biggest mystery that happened, because it was on tape, is the dismantling of the cameras on, on post number four on yes. the ranch, because it happened in an instant. Like I said, it wasn't my favorite Martian where you see the duct tape unraveling. The footage was continuous. Yes. You don't see things dancing in the air, the plugs coming undone. It was instantaneous and it was captured on tape. From one instant to the next, it's dismantled. So that's how that kind of happens. And so there's some kind of mechanism on the other side where that's able to be done in that instance, if you're going to look at the rules, and then what I've often said are the rules of things happening and not happening, there are some that seem to happen according to the story and some not to. And I don't think we have enough actual details we do with Skinwalker to make any kind of conclusion at all of, of this applying to the rules. But there are some interesting things that come up. Like you said earlier, the voices were heard in the daytime or the night, any time of the day. Yes. But most of the physical assaults happened Without any light, right? That's like, right. And when the when the light was brought into
0: the room, which was candlelight, I think in most cases, if not all, it stopped. Yeah. So the physical attacks would happen in the dark. The voices would happen any time of day and anywhere and with or without regard to who was present, including Betsy and the children.
1: Right. So there's really no application of the rules. It's so long ago. We don't really know the data set all that well. It's all one big legend now. So I I would say it's hard to apply any kind of logic to this as far as rules like can you bring fruit from a certain distance yeah 1500 miles fine 3000 no 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 we can't do that it's too nebulous to really kind of uh, apply it but they're just interesting stories which is what we do this we're we we storytellers do. exactly we're not offering solutions we're not defending anything you can believe the story or not well, that's what we always leave to you but we're just kind of relaying the information here and why would you care what i thought anyway that's yeah. usually what I end up with. Like, why are you <laughs> you debating me? What, why is my opinion that important to you? Other than I get that it upsets you. Right. So uh, getting back to the story, there's yeah. a
0: couple of more things we wanted to touch on before we wrapped up part one here. And one of them is the additional investigation of a man named Detective Williams. And I thought this was pretty interesting. This guy apparently came to the house saying that he was a professional detective and he'd heard all about the story and he wanted to analyze it. I love this quote that's in Our Family Trouble, Richard Williams Bell's book. It's hard to say that, but the Williams, it does have an s mm. so it's Richard Williams Bell's yes. book. <laughs> uh, the Williams is not possessive, whatever. Anyway, so this quote, I love this because this reminds me a little bit of Coen Brothers' dialogue, because they always find the most interesting, fascinating dialogue. And here's the the line in the book, Mr. Williams, a professional detective, stating that he had heard much of the witch mystery, which no one could explain, and having considerable experience in unraveling tangled affairs and mysteries. He had traveled a long distance for the purpose of investigating this matter, if he should be permitted to do so. Further stating that he did not believe in either preternatural or supernatural things and professed to be an expert in detecting jugglery, sleight of hand performances, illusions, etc., and would certainly expose these manifestations so much talked of if given a fair chance. This is the first time that I have read the word jugglery. (laughs) And I <laughs> that just is, love this. Detecting that is, yeah. jugglery. Oh, that is That's definitely a Cohen like.
1: Brothers gem right there. If they, if they knew about it, they would certainly use it.
0: Oh, it's so great. So apparently this guy comes into the house. John Sr. invites him in and says, hey, you know what? Come on in. That's what he did. They, yeah. they invited people in. I guess he was there for a couple of days. Nothing happened. And so, of course, he's becoming just like, all right, why did I come all this way? And then some people had gathered in the house, and he was going on and on to them about how the family was making this all up. It's ventriloquism. It's a hoax. It's a fake. It's the kids. This is all just a a put on, and everybody's falling for it. And I guess John got pretty upset at this, the patriarch of the family, and threatened to kick him out of the house. And right at that moment, Kate spoke, no, you don't, old Jack. Let him stay. I will attend to the gentleman and satisfy him that he is not so smart as he thinks.
1: Oh, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Because so, <laughs> you know what it is? It's like, I, I have Mr. McLuhan right here. Yeah. He's producing oh, the person yeah. you're, you're you going, on? yes, and, so uh, from Annie Hall. It's yeah. like- uh, A lot of movie references tonight. It's what we do. Yeah.
0: So the house, apparently, I'm going to read from this section here, which I particularly enjoy and had highlighted, and also it's public domain, so I can read as much as I want. Here we go. <laughs> yeah. yeah <right. laughs> the house was crowded with visitors that night all expectantly and anxious to hear the witch talk, and sat till late bedtime awaiting the sound of the mystifying voice. But not a word or single demonstration of any kind was heard from Kate. This confirmed the detective in his conjectures, and he repeated to several visitors his conclusions, declaring that the witch would not appear again as long as he remained. After they were all tired out, Mother had straw mattresses spread over the floor to accommodate the company, Mr. Williams, being the largest gentleman present, selected one of these pallets to himself. All retired and the light was extinguished and a night of quiet rest was promising. As soon as perfect quiet prevailed and everyone appeared to be in a dose of sleep, Mr. Williams found himself pinioned, as it were, to the floor by some irresistible force from which he was utterly powerless to extricate himself, stout as he was, and the witch scratching and pounding him with vengeance. He yelled out to the top of his voice, calling for help and mercy. Kate held up long enough to inquire of the detective which one of the family he thought had him, and then led in again, giving him an unmerciful beating while the man pleaded for life. All of this occurred in less than two minutes before a candle could be lighted, and as soon as the light appeared, the pounding ceased. But Kate did a good deal of talking, more than Mr. Williams cared to hear. The detective was badly used up and the worst scared man that ever came to our house. He sat up on a chair the balance of the night with a burning candle by his side, subjected to the witch's tantalizing sarcasm, ridicule, and derision, questioning him as to which of the family was carrying on the devilment, how he liked the result of his investigations, how long he intended to stay, etc. As soon as day dawned, Mr. Williams ordered his horse and could not be prevailed upon to remain until after breakfast. So... There you have it with the investigator. Don't
1: you wish you could just pull that out? <laughs> it's like, wait till tonight. It doesn't work that way, which is another reason why this story, if believed to be true, is so extraordinary. Because that never happens. You look at all these ghost shows. They would take a pounding in an instant if they can get that on tape. Yeah. People being pulled by the hair by some mysterious force, they would love that. There's some shows that do taunt these specters and entities, but nothing usually happens except a a rock is thrown off in the distance.
0: Yeah, and I agree. That's fascinating. And that kind of thing happened to a bunch of people that came to investigate it. They always left believers, apparently, and scared for their lives. And we will talk a little bit about the... Andrew Jackson appearance, but we're going to save that for part two. That's quite an interesting story. Because
1: it ties in, I think, with a historical character that everybody knows or should from your $20 bills. That's contested though. There are some people who said, well, there's no accounting of him actually showing up or not. I'm not sure why that's important other than that's part of the story that they can say like, well, no, see, that's an important historical thing that everyone's claiming and it's not true or there's no proof of it. But him being there, he's not a paranormal investigator. Yeah. (laughs) He was just kind of curious, and he happened to be uh, president sometime around then. So
0: Yeah. And also, according to one of our sources, he had a farm just three miles away. Right. Some skeptics will say, well, there's no evidence that this ever happened. However, there's proximity in terms of property, Yeah. although even the people that indicated that that land was close by— also indicated that he was probably mostly an absentee landlord just due to his duties and and that kind of thing. The last thing that we wanted to talk about tonight was what is ultimately the end of the road for John Bell Sr., the patriarch of the Bell household. Old Jack. Old Jack, indeed. Kate was out to get him. That's the bottom line. She had said that she would be with him for the rest of his days. At one point, he had suggested moving away, and her voice came out and said, I will follow you to the ends of the earth until
1: you are dead. God. Boy, so, that's not something you want to hear. I'm paraphrasing, but yeah, that's essentially... Yeah, thin air. Yeah.
0: Essentially, she's like, moving? Yeah, don't bother. Yeah, And Kate had already proven that she could follow Betsy when she went to other people's houses. Right. And it, it wasn't just that things were happening to her. Other people were witnessing things happening to her. There's that going on. This was the beginning of the end for John, when one day he and his son Richard Williams-Bell, who wrote the book Our Family Trouble, which is the first book in the anthology we keep mentioning. This story's on page 55 of the anthology, the printed version. He asked him to come out to the hog pen, which was about 300 yards from the house, to separate the hogs. I thought this was really... It was kind of a lesson for me because I remember... We're really coming at it with the movies tonight. In the movie Unforgiven, there's (laughs) a scene where where Clint Eastwood is like, separate them hogs. And I never knew what that meant. Uh, I've never had hogs, and I I didn't understand what it meant. But this book actually explained it, which I thought was interesting. It says, it's for the purpose of giving directions and separating the porkers intended for fattening from the stock hogs. This was a a frequent activity, I gather, on Mm. the farm. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to read this passage about what happened to john bell in the presence of his son richard as they were going out to separate these hogs on this day we had not gone far before one of john bell's shoes was jerked off i replaced it on his foot drawing the strings tight tying a double hard knot after going a few steps farther the other shoe flew off in the same manner which was replaced and tied as in the case of the first in no way that i could tie them would they hold Notwithstanding, his shoes fitted close and were a little hard to put on and we were walking over a smooth, dry road. This worried him prodigiously. Nevertheless, he bore up strongly and after much delay and worry, we reached the place and he gave directions. Seeing the hogs properly separated as he desired and the hands left for other work, we started back for the house. We had not gone many steps before his shoes commenced flying off as before. And presently, he complained of a blow on his face, which felt like an open hand that almost stunned him. And he sat down on a log that lay by the roadside. Then his face commenced jerking with fearful contortions, soon his whole body, and then his shoes would fly off as fast as I could put them on. The situation was trying and made me shudder. I was terrified by the spectacle of the contortions that seized Father, as if to convert him into a very demon to swallow me up. Having finished tying Father's shoes, I raised myself up to hear the reviling sound of derisive songs piercing the air with terrorizing force. As the demoniac shrieks died away in triumphant rejoicing, the spell passed off and I saw the tears chasing down Father's yet quivering cheeks. The trace of faltering courage marked every lineament of his face with a wearied expression of fading hope. He turned to me with an expression of tender, compassionate, fatherly devotion, exclaiming in a woeful, passionate tone, Oh, my son, my son, not long will you have a father to wait on so patiently. I cannot much longer survive the persecutions of this terrible thing. It is killing me by slow tortures, and I feel that the end is nigh. So after this, they went back to the house, and John Bell Sr. got into bed, and he fell very, very ill, and he had a lot of issues, but he was still for a day or two, this was somewhere in mid-December of 1820, yeah. he was able to get out of bed in the morning and make breakfast for the family. However, one morning, which I believe it was the 19th, I'm not sure, he failed to get up, and dear Luce, as Kate called her, made breakfast for the family. Now, he had been being attended to by Dr. Hobson, I believe, mm-hmm. who came from several miles away, and he had prescribed several medications, and I use the word prescribe loosely. He brought <laughs> yeah, he brought some vials. Yeah, yeah, they were yes administered freely. <laughs> so Richard actually was in charge of administering the medicines that Doctor Hobson left, and he said that after nearly every dose that he gave him, the spirit, which he called her now, would say, "That is of no use. I'm going to kill him." However, on the morning of December nineteenth, he didn't get up. And they couldn't figure out why he didn't get up to make breakfast, because prior to that, he'd been getting up in the mornings, but for some reason he did not. They couldn't rouse him and they became concerned. They go over to the cabinet where the medicines were, which originally were the three vials were that Dr. Hobson brought, and they're not there. What is there is a small vial of brown smoky liquid that none of them had seen before. They couldn't figure out what it was. So they took it down off the shelf, dipped a straw in it, and apparently gave some of it to the family cat.
1: Well, Um, different times back
0: then. Different times. The the cat immediately started having issues and was dead within an hour or two. So they knew it was poison. At that point, they threw it into the fireplace, and apparently it emitted a blue flame as it exploded. Yeah. They never found out what was in there. Of course, there were no forensics back then. As they stood around trying to figure out where the vial came from and what was in it, the spirit called out with great glee, He will never get up. I did it. That was the end of John Bell, Sr.
1: Wow, well, just imagine if you, if you take the story to be true and you're John Bell, Sr. And for about the last four years, this thing has terrorized your family. At first it was amusing, but now it's downright gone from annoying to just terrifying. And what you're up against, as far as they know, this thing is omniscient. It knows your innermost thoughts, your deepest, darkest secrets. And not just yours, but everybody in town. It knows your personal history. It knows what's going to happen to you. It can mimic anybody. Relatives overseas. Relatives who have passed away. Where does it get this information? How does this work? You have no idea. But what you do know is that it can physically beat you. It can play tricks on you. It can tell you the truth, but it can lie to you and it can deceive you. It can not only predict the future, but it's eternal. There's nowhere you can run. There's nowhere you can hide. And it has told you, in no uncertain terms, that it will not leave. It will not stop until it sees you dead. (laughs) That's going to wrap up part one of our show on The Bell Witch. Come back next week for part two, where we'll share a few more stories and dive into our customary analysis of the origins and plausibility of her existence. Special thanks again to The ARC, especially Marissa Ball and Quade Joslin. Please remember to
0: support our sponsors, visit our website and online store, or become a supporter at patreon.com.
1: Special thanks to John Boland. Hi. Hi. I'm Mrs. Sawbones. I'm Trace Con. I'm Trish Burdick. I understand this is with no implied promise of... Galaxy-wide permission to... Kick-ass suspense fiction. Please continue to listen. Your brains are very important to us.
0: Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees-Wendel, and the theme is by Judson Crane. Sound design is by Ryan McCullough.
1: Special thanks to The ARC and its lead researcher, Tess Feifel. But most importantly, we want to thank our listeners. You can find us online at astonishinglegends.com, as well as Facebook, Patreon, Twitter... And Instagram. Copyright Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Good night.